it's somewhat admirable. Just wonder what they look like. I can't help it. You'll you'll here's the thing is you'll probably be disappointed. Your imagination is always going to especially with those people that you put on such a pedestal as a kid to see, you know, sometimes the the thought or the imagination does so much more for you. And then you see it and then you can't go back from seeing it if it's bad. You never want to meet your heroes. Exactly. Especially two heroes That's in her shirt. Exactly. You never want to meet them because maybe they're not gonna look maybe they're not gonna sign your autograph at the airport. No. Like, <clears throat> yeah. Okay. You find out they're an asshole. I see what you're doing here, and I appreciate mm-hmm. what you're doing yeah. for me. So that's I'm good. just trying to be supportive. Hey, women play this role so much in life. And in the story that we're going to tell today, the man pulling the strings here was no stranger to using women to try to draw in men for his his ultimate goals. There's, I was listening to, um, like kind of a last minute like podcast on the way over here. And it was actually about not the founder. Well, let's just, let's just get into what the topic is going to be. Cause then it lets me use names and it's a little bit more identifiable. Where is this our first foray, foray into, I guess what you could consider organized religion. Satanism is just as organized as this shit. That's true. That is true. Somehow though, this gets, it, it hasn't been getting a pass recently, which it should not. But I feel like this right here is almost worse. It, it is worse. Like the methods that, you know, that Scientology uses, dun, 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 we're going there. Um, the methodology that Scientology uses, once you really dig into it, is, it, call it what it is, it's a cult. A form of mind control. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, some of the beginning steps can be seen as what self-help and things like that. But I feel like that's just you know window dressing until you get to the to the turd inside. Well, and it's so much of it's programming. It's it's self-help with just a like a little ripcord that they put inside of it that only they know that they're the ones that can pull to make that all happen and mm-hmm. unravel. And it's a, a completely self-serving thing. I, I don't know. I, I usually like talking about cults. This one just makes me angry from pillar to post because it's still most cults that we get to have like an end. They have like a resolution. You you may not get like a nice bow on the top of it, but at least there's some type of closure for it. The fact that this. You know, there doesn't seem to be any sign of closure, except, I guess, the passage of time, which it's going to take more time to to finally kind of, I think, put a nail in this thing. Um, yeah, it's kind of left open-ended and kind of like we were talking about, what was it, uh, that we couldn't think of any happy thoughts about the last one we did. A few of them. Yeah. And you, you <laughs> oh, try the Nazis. To, yeah, and you try to kind of find a, a happy way to end it, but it's really just kind of like, eh. But that's, you know what, I think we're getting an example that most of life does not come with a happy bow or happy, happy ending on the, on the end of it. No. And if anything, 
maybe after hearing all this, maybe this is the call to action for everybody to be like, yo, we got to quit giving tax-exempt status to churches. We have to make that in because this is what happens. How does that even, like, make sense? It's not a fucking charity. It's a it's a profitable enterprise that... <sighs> I... To me, it's weird because you use the phrasing nonprofit so oddly because technically anybody with a job in the nonprofit that's being paid is profiting, right? Yes. <clears throat> they're being paid for their time and to choose the level of pay and wages that they're getting, that can be debatable. If somebody's making $275,000 a year showing up three days a week to run a nonprofit, mm-hmm. that to me feels like it's considered profiting. It and is. not to mention at the end of the year, even if you do have a profit, if you're buying more, like in this case, if you're buying more real yeah, what estate. Are you, what are you using to purchase the real estate? What are you using to purchase, you know, l- luxury items? You're using money that's being created by your organization. That's a profit. Well, and all you're doing is you're shelling it off as a church asset instead of your own. You're not writing these mansions or you're not writing these vehicles or jets into, excuse me, into your own personal name, into your own accounts. Excuse me, goddamn! Everything is owned by the church, so conveniently. I, yeah, I mean, the, the if the sheets that you sleep in are owned by the church, you're probably profiting off the church. It's just sort of how it goes. Mm-hmm. So Scientology gets its dates back to a fella named L. Ron Hubbard, Lafayette Ronald <laughs> Hubbard. I could see why he dropped and just went with the initial on the first name there. I. A Lafayette born out of the South seems very odd. Oh, no, that's where it's born out of. Uh, well, he was born in Nebraska. Oh, okay. So yes. It, I, I think Lafayette, isn't that more? Because it does have, what, French influence to it, I think. Yeah, and I think there's a Lafayette, Louisiana. Yeah, and so that's where you get it more of like Cajun-type Louisiana is where you're going to get that name. But um, good old Elron was born March 13th, 1911 in uh, Tilden, Nebraska. And... I mean, I don't really know much about as far as like his early, early youth or anything like that, like how he grew up or anything. Um, I'm assuming he got bullied. I'm assuming he did, but here's the other thing too. A lot of that information probably isn't really that really available because this guy was known to go to great means to try to eliminate any negative type of publicity or any inf- information about him. Well, and the hell of a storyteller that he was – he went to great lengths to try to eliminate that stuff, but there's just so many things that he left unturned. Like, he's just sort of a, a king of follies when it comes to trying to do things. We're talking about a guy that got kicked out of school because his grades sucked. A guy that got kicked out of the Navy initially because his eyes were fucked. Well, did you hear and, what he did in the Navy? Yeah, yeah. No, well, that was the second go-around. Okay. But he had a first go-around. Let's be honest. The only reason he got into the Navy was because we were in the 40s and World Wars were... We're hot in the streets. Yeah, but why are we promoting people like this to command him? Yeah. He had, at one point, he had command of two separate shit. I think destroyers or well, sub hunters. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. That's fucking. Okay. It's a very funny story. Um, so he's primarily known essentially as the father of Dianetics and Scientology, which it's so funny that it, like how it went from him trying to pass it off as a science and as soon as he was told no 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 that's not a science he's like well then it's a religion it's just a very simple like if it's if it's not scientifically plausible or backed you just ship that shit into a religion and then because it's religion magic can happen 
There's no peer-reviewed studies on religion. Mm-mm. There's no nobody's above you. There's no theologians going to be like that's not. Really There's right. no historical investigation of questioning for roles of people and things like that. No, especially when it takes place off planet. Because <laughs> we've yeah. only had micro or we've only had um, telescopes for so long. So you can't tell me I'm wrong if we didn't have a telescope before this all happened. Um. So he. Prior to essentially founding Scientology, he was a sci-fi and fantasy author. And this dude wrote a lot of shit. Uh-huh. He is a Guinness World Record holder for most uh, publicized works. Uh, under one author. He has like three or four of them. Oh, records? Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. And I'm guessing probably, I mean, I don't know how much he was writing after. I'm assuming he was got pretty busy with Dianetics and Scientology after the fact, but I'm Probably, I'm, I think it's safe to say that with our 80% accuracy rating on this, that 80% of his work is probably, no, I mean, because you can consider Scientology fan. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's 100% fiction. Okay, there we go. <laughs> he, um, he got his starting out just kind of in, uh, I learned a new term. I, I didn't know what Pulp Fiction actually meant, mm-hmm. but apparently Pulp Fiction is named Pulp Fiction for the kind of paper that it's written on, yeah. Pulp Paper. Yeah. Had no idea that that's what it was. Cheap to produce. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just like little um like sex novels almost like the early startings of Mad Magazine mm-hmm. or old wrestling magazines where yeah. it was that paper that was really really thin and mm-hmm. easily terrible. You could wipe your ass with it. Yeah, like like somewhere in between like Bible paper and regular paper is what pulp paper was. Yeah. And he started writing um a little bit before, but he ended up at George Washington University and he was going for like physics or some goofy shit like of something very, he had no knowledge no or no, no something of. that was way out of his wheelhouse probably something so he could go back and say oh i've studied this mm-hmm. and then he would have some type of like record of him studying it regardless of what is you're not going to see his grades in it but he's like no i i've legitimately studied this well you, you're dog shit at it well and later on in his life he basically pays for a degree from just a like a non-accredited university that mm-hmm. gives him a doctorate for i'm sure a certain amount of money yeah so he went by Dr. Hubbard for a while after that happened. But he only made it two years for George Washington University, and they just kicked him out because his grades were so bad. But at that point, he knew that his writing mind was going to be able to carry him further than whatever he was going to GWU for. Yeah, I want to say that when he was writing those stories in those, what you consider those Pulp Fiction magazines, I'm trying to remember the name of the magazine. Uh, It was... Astounding Science Fiction, right? Uh-huh. Okay. So he would get paid, wouldn't it be like a penny a word mm-hmm. or something like that? So, you know, you turn the bullshit faucet on and you just let that shit spew out on the page and, you know. Adjectives and adverbs oh, everywhere. Yeah. You're, you're just writing to get paid at that point. You don't really care maybe what you're writing as long as it sounds, you know, decent enough to get you the next job. Well, and it's, he seems to have been semi-good at it. Uh, he left George Washington University with a wife. Margaret Polly Grubb, she has sort of an unfortunate exit out of this whole story. But he, at one time, he was like the head of the guild of writers for, like, fiction writers in New York. I feel like that was probably something he may have made No, he he was actually, because they would have these conventions that they would go to. And he was such a massive bullshit artist that when these people get together, they're all fiction writers. So they're all coming with stories. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy where his story had to top out at every single one of them. And there was actually a fiction writer that they interviewed about talking to him kind of in the early days. And they all met up for one of these bullshit sessions. And he wrote down every single one of Elrond's stories that he was telling. Mm -hmm. Like, 
I did this for 10 years. I did this for five years. He said, after they got done, as they were walking out, he walked up. He goes, so are you 83 years old? And Ron goes, no, why? He goes, well, based on all the stories you told in order to do that from birth till now, you would have had to have had 84 years in your life to get through all your stories. He's like, well, I'm actually an immortal being, so I've lived several lives. That might have tipped him off. That's what I'm saying is if you had to think up a bullshit excuse for it, you know, you can go ahead with the with the past lives and experience shit. Yeah, I, and you can tell just by the sheer amount of stories that he wrote, he had just kind of that knowledge to be able to make some shit up. He His first novel that he ever wrote came out in 1937. It's called Buckskin Brigades. No idea what it is. Didn't really take time to look into it. Buckskin Brigades, probably something to do with Native Americans and cowboys. I feel like that would be the name of a porn at this point. Could be. Yeah, it's it was Debbie Does Dallas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm shocked he didn't get into graphic novels. That seems like that could have been his wheelhouse. He might not have been an artist. Because I think part of that is you do have to have some type of artistic. Because the thing about graphic novels is, yeah, they do tell a story, but it's not a story in essence. Is like, you know, full paragraphs and everything. You're having to have that skill set of telling a story within like smaller, succinct dialogue. True. But yeah, so from 38 to 50, he wrote for Astounding Science Fiction magazine. Well, during this time, he when did he end up getting into the Naval Academy? So he failed his entrance exam in 28. So before he even went to George Washington University, bad eyes, didn't work. Um, he ended up being accepted in 1941. So he... When things started getting a little yeah, desperate for people to it, fill roles. And that's what I mean, 28... We're kind of Depression era, starting to get into that, not mm-hmm. really looking out of a world war, not looking to get back into yeah. another engagement. So we probably don't need the best in the, or we need the best and the brightest in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Come 41, we're probably signing up anybody that we can. We're looking for someone to put in these uniforms exactly. and throw a hat yeah. on. Yep. And he, what was it? He ends up being a... He commissioned as a junior lieutenant in the yeah. Naval Reserve. And then in 43... He's actually put on a sub chaser um, in the Pacific, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And was this the incident where he launched all his ordnance at a log? He had, well, so he first off thought that he spotted a submarine in the sub chaser and went ahead and launched a few rockets at it. It turned out it was just depth a floating charges. log. Depth charges. Oh, were they depth charges for the yeah, log? Yeah, they, they didn't have, aside from torpedoes, they didn't have. Uh, rocket technology to do i think what happened is his radar operator was like hey there's something on the bottom it turned out to be a fucking like log yeah but it was but he sees it and he's like fucking launch all depth charges and i think they launched almost all their ordnance of this thing came up empty-handed because you're trying to fire a fucking log they they had some sort of capacity on the deck because after that incident he went ahead and floated down with the sub chaser into mexican waters accidentally and then opened fire on a small Mexican island. He shelled a fucking island in Mexico. <laughs> like Just an international incident. Okay, so not only are you in the Pacific, but now you're going down and you're firing. Like, what are you fucking like? The, it's, you're against, like, Japan. Yeah. It's all the way on the other side. Everything that you need to fire at is west, not south. South is a completely sovereign country. What's on this fucking island that you start fucking shelling at? You see someone's house, you're like, bunker. Is that... Looked like a rising sun flag. Get it. So he got removed from two commands. So the first command he got removed from for launching all his ordnance at a log. The second one, it was for shelling a Mexican island. And so at that point, he's fucking drummed out of the Navy. Well, he got put on a troller boat. 
Oh, did he? he? Yeah, he he was not in a high ranking position, but he was put on some transport boats and did a few other things. And he ended no up, guns. No, no, yeah, they. He's like, "Where's the guns on this boat?" It's like you had your, you've had your, you've had your uh, shot at having weapons. You don't get weapons anymore. You blew the fuck out of a log and you shelled a poor island. Mm-hmm. I think we're probably good giving you any sort of weapon. Yeah, but he stayed in for a, Here's decent- a radio. If you think you see something, radio someone more competent, and they'll come and make the the assessment of the situation. Here's a whistle and a telescope. Mm-hmm, make sure, much. double check. Yep. But he stayed in for a decent amount of time afterwards because there were times um, when he actually had to inform the Navy that he was leaving the country to do certain things. And I want to say it was right around the 50s because after he gets done with the Navy sort of in his capacity, 1945, he meets a guy named Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a very, very smart individual. He was really prominent in the, um, what do they call it, um, the uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And he was self-taught. Yeah. Like he, he was kind of a savant at making things go. That's the thing is you get someone who's a savant. Like that's the whole thing about people that, you know, you have a lane and some people find their lane of what they excel at. Now, sometimes your lane happens to just be bullshit manipulation. Mm-hmm. Other times your lane happens to be rocket propulsion and everything. So you're essentially having a meeting of two people who excel at their fields. One field just happens to be fucking selling snake oil. And the other is, I don't know if I would say impressionable, probably a little bit impressionable. Are you talking about Jack Parsons? Yeah. Here's the thing. We've talked about people that, you know, are geniuses in these type of, you know, physics, mathematics, things like that. Look at um, J.P. Oppenheimer, low, you know, social skills lacking. You you excel at something so much that you're focusing all of your, you know, mental energy and your attention on that and your other skills happen to, you get skills fade on that. You don't develop those skills because it's not necessary for you to develop those skills. So you do get people that, you know, what's surprising is you get someone who obviously knowing about rocket propulsion on that stuff, you would have more of an analytical mind and more of a, I guess I would imagine, or I would like to think that you would have more of a, a detector for bullshit and just, you know, false information. But I guess if you're so focused on one thing, you maybe are you just so open-minded about things that you're willing to just entertain the ideas? Well, yeah, I, I would say that. I would also say he had a very different side outside of his professional life. He actually started his own occult society. And oh, that's right, yeah. So he was fairly deep. This is Pasadena, California, and way, way before uh, Free Love in the 60s and the whole hippie movement, there was still some fun stuff popping off in California. Mm-hmm. So his occult society was called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Orientis. And... It seemed, from some of the videos that I watched of it, it was just very, it felt a lot like um, Anton LaVey and the Satanists. Mm-hmm. Just sort of the the kind of things that they would record as far as like weird movies and different sort of uh, rituals that they would do. I think Elrond was really in on that. Like, I, I think that he felt kind of the fanaticism of that, mostly because he is a very creative story writer at the same time. It's a world of mythology sort of bordering on religion that I think kind of helped him maybe start to think more about it. Because even before this, 
um, in the forties when he was talking or the early forties, when he was talking to some of his writers, he was starting to play around with the idea of creating a religion. I think he said something along the lines of kind of what you said, where you can either get, um, paid a penny per word, but the real money was in starting a religion. Mm -hmm. So he felt at a young age that that might be a, a profitable venture. And that simple fact that that's what drives you. It's not like the, you know, it's a calling for you that you're trying to go ahead and create something benevolently or, you know, with intentions. If you're trying to create something just strictly off the fact that it's profitable, how is that not just immediately hit you in the face and say, okay, so this wasn't started with the the best means, you know, Mm. in mind. Red flag immediately. Yes. Right off the jump. He must've really gotten, like I said, I don't know what his influence was on Jack Parsons, but they ended up starting a venture together. And in this venture, uh, he talked um, Jack into fronting about 90% of the money. I think it was something like Jack put up 21000 and he put up like 1200 or something. Mm-hmm. Their big idea was that he was going to fly to Miami from California, buy a couple yachts, big boats, f- um, sail them back around to the West Coast, and they were going to sell them at a, a higher profit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they just didn't have that kind of building on the flipping West Coast boats. or what. Yeah, fl- flipping yeah. boats. Yep, yeah, flipping. He talks Jack into letting his girlfriend, um, Sarah Betty Northrup, go with him over to Miami. So something about wanting your girlfriend and your friend to travel across the country together and be on boats, you have to be a very loving individual. Like a, a very trusting individual. Yes. So they get over there. Um, L. Ron holds up his end of the deal, buys some boats. Then he sort of fades off, gets lost in the life over there. Him and Betty have kind of found their own way together, um, and he just stays. When does Margaret leave the picture? <laughs> Margaret actually leaves the picture after... Because um, they're still married at this point, right? Yeah. Okay. L. Ron decides that uh, him and Betty are going to stay on the East Coast. Jack goes ahead and sues him, gets a little bit of money back. I think he got like 2100 out of the 21000 initial mm-hmm. investment back. But Elron marries Betty. Now, this makes Elron a bigamist because he's already been married once and is already currently married. Different statesman doesn't count. <laughs> In different sides <laughs> of the country. Yeah, exactly. East Coast, West Coast. God can't see that, mm-hmm. right? Or Zenu can't see that. Zenu cannot see that. So... Once she becomes aware that um, Betty is married to Elron, It's a thruple now. Yeah, it's a thruple that she doesn't want to be a part of. She exits the marriage probably at the right time. Uh, nobody yeah. in his life... You're going to get out get out, <laughs> out of this shit early. Uh-huh. Get you don't, you don't jump off the ship when it's level with the water. You get out when the lifeboats are being lowered and you can get a safe distance away. Yeah, she, she left right after... Dog, or right after port, she mm-hmm. she got off easy. It's because of the implication. You get him it's, out there on the boat, and it's you know it's the implication that keeps him on. You can't leave; something bad might happen to you. Um, Ron really started digging into Dianetics late forties, right around forty nine. Um, as he was writing these papers on Dianetics, Dianetics just kind of simply put, I don't know if you really have a better. Um, it is, to me, it basically sounds like very simple um, theories in psychology and psychiatry. 
I, but, and he, that's, but he puts his own spin on him. That's sort of what it is. Yeah, it's that would probably be the best way to explain it. Would be Dianetics is almost like a self help to where if you are struggling, you are having issues uh, mentally, depression, anything along those lines. It's sort of ways to be able to speak about these and talking about your problems is a, a great problem solver. That's, to, it's counseling, man. It's therapy. That's the whole point. He he tied it towards something that was already so recognized that it wasn't far enough removed from that to make it sound like horse shit. And at this point, I think, think in the 50s, like self-help type stuff, you're coming off of the war. You know, everyone's trying to reestablish themselves, you know, get work. You're looking at a post-world boom. And part of that would be, you know, people are looking for ways to better themselves, especially people coming back with maybe their only skill set was, you know, in the military and everything. He's basically offering like a guidebook on, hey, I'm going to let you know how to remove all of the things that are holding you back in life. And we're going to go ahead and, you know, some of the, the terms that he uses for this sound weird, but he just puts his own terms on things. Like instead of counseling, it's auditing. Uh, yeah, it's and instead of just like speaking back and forth, he uses something called a an e-meter. And these were kind of like a dollar store lie detector. Uh, it's very simple. It just I feel like it's the easy bake oven of lie detectors. Could be, yeah. yeah. You, do, you can do it at home. It's going to get you, you know, results if you're baking something by a fucking light bulb. And, you know, brownies are ready in four hours. It It lets you not know when a lie is happening. It basically senses electrical pulses inside your body that your brain creates like deviations in your like bioelectrics like uh-huh. your pulse and then like whatever you know electrical impulses like your body creates um the thing about dianetics was it basically where it kind of deviates from modern psychiatry and psychology is that dianetics basically divides the mind into three parts you have the analytical mind the reactive mind and then the somatic mind and Basically, the goal of Dianetics is to erase the contents of the reactive mind, and they believe that that interferes with a person's ethics, awareness, and happiness. So by this auditing, what he would say, that's supposed to get rid of those, you know, get rid of the contents of the reactive mind to allow you to experience your peak, you know, ethical nature and your awareness and happiness. So in that way, it is very self-helpy. And I could see why initially people would get on it and be like, listen, I've tried other stuff. It hasn't worked. I'm going to go ahead and try this. It could also be a placebo effect too. Very but much so. how many things in life end up being a placebo effect? Well, and, and this is, we're talking about the kid end of the pool. We're talking about four feet. Mm-hmm. And you start wading out a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And he starts preaching about traumas that happened in prior lives. Things that happened before you were born that would cause you trauma that would still cause you to react. I forgot which mind that is. It was all um, in the reactive mind. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Your reactive mind is holding past traumas that you don't remember and may not have been a part of. But in a reactive way, and we'll see this kind of when we get into the auditing during Scientology. He's preaching that not all of your problems were your problems. It could have been from past lives. Mm-hmm. It could have been from trauma that you had never experienced. But technically, your and this will be a word that we're going to use quite frequently that your Thetan spirit, yes, so was a part of. We're going to be using you know terms. Uh, Thetans is going to be one getting brought up. The Thetan is basically your immortal inner self that has experienced many past lives. Now, 
we're going to get into how essentially thetans get into your body when we get into the real fucking wacky shit. But basically, you couldn't you you might have one thetan, you might have multiple thetans that attach themselves to your body. Um, Ingrams, engrams, engrams. Sorry, um, engrams form in the mind due to thetans' past traumatic experiences. So where they're stored, essentially, according to good old Elrond here, that's what are stored in the reactive mind. And by doing auditing, you can basically get rid of these Ingrams. And by not having these traumatic experiences, that was that's what allows you to essentially reach your what peak potential or whatever they would consider it. The clear. Yes, you'd be going clear. Once you're able to get rid of all of these Ingrams that these Satans inside you are carrying, you would be considered clear or you're going clear. Um, I think it was in 50 when he finally wrote Dianetics. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So Yeah, so it was in it was in 1950 that he actually was it when that was published and when he started submitting it to essentially like the Journal of American Medicine and he, he did that with his papers beforehand. Okay. So if you're thinking at home this sounds like a bunch of fanatical bullshit, you're not alone. He submitted these papers on Dianetics to the Journal of American Medical um and the American Journal of Psychiatry. And they had much the same reaction that you did. This is crazy. This is bullshit. There is pseudo-psychology that's wrapped up in these crazy-ass stories that we can't pass off. We're not putting our stamp on this shit. This is nuts. Nope. So immediately, uh, this is something that you're going to see a lot play through this. If you're not with the Ron, you're against the Ron. Mm -hmm. And these people became enemy number one. And throughout Scientology's whole existence, the main mortal enemy of Scientology has been psychiatrists, psychologists. Established established medicine and science. Yes. So whereas Dianetics is a therapy, and I'm quoting, doing air quotes on that, Scientology is the religion itself that is essentially based off of the beliefs stated in Dianetics when it comes to things and that shit. And he had a, a a weird kind of a a good run that ended so poorly because he was such a bad businessman. But um, he paired back up with, uh, what was it, Astounding Science Fiction, and they duly dropped the book Dianetics, May 9th, 1950. It really kind of sparked fire quick. So that happened in May. By August, they had sold 55,000 copies. Of Dianetics. I don't know numbers as far as books go. I assume if you're selling 55,000 in like a quarter of a year, that's some pretty good sales. It's catching on. Yeah, absolutely. And (coughs) they had ended up setting up 500 Dianetic auditing groups that were all set up around the United States. And they were bringing in good money. And one of the things that they used was... If going to the psychiatrist to talk to them was a hundred dollars a session, an, an auditing session at Dianetics was fifty bucks. Yeah, we're gonna undercut you for the for a better service. Mm-hmm. We're gonna offer you a better service for less. So why not go with that? If you don't feel comfortable doing it that way, going and speaking to it's a, a two for one. We're gonna give you two auditing sessions. It's you know it's a fucking coupon is what it is. Yeah, and it seemed to have worked really well. Uh, it didn't even take longer than a year before things really started to go south because, like I was saying, Elrond was getting these payments out of these auditing centers and he was just pocketing the cash. Mm-hmm. He was going off, doing a bunch of goofy shit. He was going and buying boats and just really kind of burned his business in to 
a point where he was going bankrupt. Well, here's the thing, too, is when he was establishing Dianetics, Dianetics being, at this point, what he would pass off as a psychology or type of therapy, guess what? You're paying taxes on that shit. You're supposed uh-huh. to pay taxes on that kind of stuff. Well, he he knew enough to know, well, what doesn't get taxed? A religion. A religion. So why am I, you know, paying Uncle Sam a bunch of this money when I can just simply pivot this thing just a little bit and work to make myself more money? And that was after he kind of saw his end going ass up. He had a couple people, and this is sort of a theme through Scientology. You don't need everybody. You just need a few whales. Yes. A few big spenders that are willing to support your cause financially, and you can give them uh, little tokens of uh, happiness, like thank yous, Mm -hmm. but they're never going to get out anything that they put in. And a few investors happen to save him. Um, He ends up kind of bouncing around a little bit, ends up in Phoenix, and he started the Association of Scientologists, and he did that still with uh, Betty Northrup. Mm-hmm. They're still together. Scientology is born in Phoenix, and it starts to, you see the shift from Dianetics, and Dianetics being folded into the Scientology sort of wing of what he's doing. And once you put the label on something like that, Scientology sounds a shitload like psychology, but at the same time, as you introduce more religious aspects of it, it's going to start to appeal to a broader audience. Even the name of it, I mean, he was smart in picking the name in that he was basically able to say, no, this is based in science. Look at the name. It's Scientology. I mean, he's the consummate marketer of finding out what's going to go ahead and speak to people. Um, Real quick, I do have to take a pee. I know it's early on, but I got to go. I'm good. All right, back at it. Um, kids, just as a side note, enjoy your ability to just completely hold whatever is in your bladder for extremely long periods of time. Because as you do get a little bit older, the bathroom breaks become more prevalent. But Especially at night. Yeah. Those are the worst. So kind of like just breaking it down for like a timeline and everything. So yeah, in 1953, Scientology opens its first church. And then in 54, the church in Los Angeles opens. And basically, you know, he's created, and one of the other things that kind of is a staple of Scientology is the separation of so many different, like, organizations. So Scientology isn't just held under one umbrella. And I mean that from, like, a business perspective. Like, he was smart enough to know that he needs to essentially spread this out. So you had so many different organizations of Scientology. You had the association, you had the religion itself, and then there were multiple other ones that, you know, people don't even know about. Shell companies Mm -hmm. that are at your will to kind of spread whatever good information you want, hide stuff, bad and, information. Yeah. And he really, in that way and in the ways of so many cult leaders, he knew that if you could separate um, children from adults, kids from parents, you were going to have a lot better of a hold on them. Oh, yeah. And you were going to be able to teach them every which way that you wanted to. So as... Um, Dianetics gets folded in like we were talking about. It being, becomes the like the Bible yeah. to curse you, you know, that. Dianetics is basically the, the handbook of Scientology. And it's the vehicle to create basically what you want to create. And he created levels a little bit later on, but um, Dianetics 
was the way to turn a Thetan into something called an operating Thetan. An operating Thetan in Scientology is someone who can then ascend the ranks and start learning the secrets within Scientology, but you have to get rid of all those engrams before yeah, you can Yeah, you don't get rid of the Thetan. The Thetan is an immortal being. You don't get rid of them mm-hmm. out of the you know reactive mind. You're simply just trying to clear up all of the trauma and shit. So basically, it's psychology not for you. Or counseling, not for you, but for this immortal being that just happens to be hitchhiking inside your fucking meat suit. Yeah, you're just a sack of meat. That's yeah. all you are. And in order to continue on and progress, um, most religions, if they're going to do that, usually don't put a monetary price tag on it. But with Elrond, he decided that in order to ascend, you needed to spend while you ascend. Yeah, we're not going to offer you something for nothing. That would that would be irresponsible for us. We have to be able to charge for it because we have to be able to keep offering you these services. If we don't charge you for it, we're not going to be around to continue to help you. Mm-hmm. I, one of his big, big ones um, in the beginning was after the E-meters were introduced. Um, How do you think that that even came to being? An, an E-meter is basically like... <laughs> All it is is you attach these two electrodes, aluminum cans. Yeah, two aluminum rods that you basically hold on to, and they call them cans. And then the meter itself is supposed to detect changes. I think we mentioned this changes essentially in like your pulse rate and everything. And what that allows you to do during an auditing session, you have an auditor who is someone who is practiced and familiar with Scientology and Dianetics. Basically, they tell you that this person is able to go ahead and read these e meters to tell you and lead you into your counseling for this Thetan. And so you'd be holding these cans. They would ask you questions or have you be talking about something if they saw a reaction on the E-meter, which was basically just one meter. It looks like a like an amplifier meter. Yep. And it either goes right or left. I don't know what the meaning is between right or left or anything, but if it sees a reaction out of it, it would then prompt that auditor to say, okay, let's go ahead and dig into that a little bit more. Go deeper. What, mm-hmm. what are you feeling about this? And the way that he trained these auditors is so much of a just a weird grooming technique that cult leaders use. He would train these young adults in the beginning, really, to be able to sit across from somebody and to make eye contact and to make no like facial expression as opposed to whatever stimuli is going mm-hmm. on because that's part of it is being an auditor – you don't want to show the emotion that then evokes emotion out of somebody else. You don't you want, want to show that glee when you get that juicy bit of fucking dirt <laughs> uh-huh. on somebody and know that you've got them. Because again, they're using this information and it's going to become more prevalent as we go through the you know go through this. They're keeping files on everybody doing this. They're keeping records on every little bit of information that these people are giving out. Well, when you're being prompted to explore these things that can be traumatic for you or that are causing this e-meter. You know, if you were to ask me something and be like, hey, um, what's the weirdest thing you've ever looked at sexually? My pulse is going to go up a little bit and they're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let's go into that a little bit more and be writing all this Mm -hmm. kind of shit down. It's basically, when you boil it down, it's a way to gather information to, we'll find out, to be used later if they need to. Well, and for whole good means, it's really not the worst thing in the world to try to explore that for people, because there are people that hold things closer to the vest, uh, a sexual proclivity, something like that could lead you down a path mm-hmm. to, you got mother issues dead. Yeah, exactly. Like that. So in, in the right hands, it's not a bad way to go about it. It's psychology is what it yeah. is. And so you're sitting across from this auditor and they're asking you questions. And regardless if you did use any type of established, 
you know, psychiatry or psychology, it wasn't so different from that that it, you know, raised the hairs on the back of your neck and said, ah, something's not right here. Something's off. It was close enough that, and especially if you got initial results out of the practices in Dianetics, it helped you. They said the key goals were to help you, you know, optimize yourself as a person, help your interpersonal communication skills, your confidence, things like that. If you got any results out of that, whether it just be simply changing the way that you interact with somebody, you're like, oh, this shit's working. Yeah, it might be a little, it seems maybe a little off, but what am I to question it? I, I didn't write this and it is seem to be working for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick this out. Well, think about any honest conversation that you've ever had with somebody you always come out feeling lighter because you were able to unshed that burden that you felt. That yeah, you exactly. It's a weight off your shoulders. So I, a lot of the Scientologists talking that have actually left the church said that they they really loved auditing sessions and they would actually be able to feel that weight lift mm-hmm. just thinking about it. But at the same time, the other end of that is these auditing sessions are being meticulously noted. Some of them are being filmed so they can go back and they can replay. They could figure this stuff out. At a certain point, I think that was a requirement was that all of these had to be filmed. I wouldn't doubt it just because it's you can have other auditors that are maybe looking for certain things to try to pull out that maybe the initial auditor had missed. I think part of it also came down to um, provability of what these people said. Cause if someone just presents you with a file and is like, this guy said this, this, and this, you're like, okay, well you just wrote that down. They're like, well, no, we can show you evidence of this person saying it themselves. It could. Unfortunately, I don't know what can be used as evidence. Like legally it can't be used. as evidence. No, no, no. But it can be used to slander somebody to ruin someone's reputation. Uh, and it can be used to remind somebody of saying something that they said that was deeply embarrassing. Exactly. And then if you tried to go ahead and sue them for, you know, defamation or anything like that, they can say, well, no, you can't because we have you on video actually saying these things. So what are you arguing that you didn't say these things, that you didn't mean these things, but you know, how are we to tell? Just a coercive technique of power. And not only were the people being audited kind of being used, but the auditors themselves were being broken down to be basically desensitized to any kind of crazy things that they see. And they weren't, you know, um, immune from being audited themselves. No, no everybody... It, to the end of Elrond's life, he was wow. That sounded really southern. To the end of his life, he was still auditing himself. He mm-hmm. was going through these things. He was running e meters on a daily basis to try to get his thetans off of him because he started to drink his own Kool Aid. So if he's being fooled by his own brand of bullshit, imagine the amount of influence he had over these other people that he's explaining it to. And these auditors aren't going in there initially to try to gather this background intelligence, but unknowingly to them, they're almost the catalyst for being able to have an upper hand on all these people that are being audited. Ipso facto, the auditors were audited at one point, so they also have garbage on them that has been audited in the past. Mm -hmm. It's just a constant cycle of gathering dirt on people. Um, In 57, by 57, he was actually grossing about $250,000 a year. And then by the 60s, the movement was actually worldwide at that point. Um, It was kind of during that point in the 60s, too, that he came under a lot of like either or it was all three of them. It was media, government and legal pressure in quite a few countries because people started to smell the bullshit. And he, you know, basically saw that these people were being taken advantage of. So at that point, you know, he still did have a couple ships, I think. So that's where he was kind of traveling around to different places. He went to the Mediterranean quite a few times and, you know, they would get off at these ports and then try to kind of spread the word of Scientology around. 
And at some point, a lot of these countries are like, yeah, you're not welcome here. Don't, don't be pulling up here anymore. He did this multiple times too. Like this, this wasn't his first foray into going onto the high seas. I'm assuming it's probably because he still had his naval boner about not being able to be a captain anymore. So he was almost more comfortable. Look at the uniforms, man. So he created, I'm not sure exactly when he created it, but it was sometime. Yeah. 1967. It was 67. Okay. So yeah, late sixties and early seven or early seventies, good old Elrond. He spent a lot of his time at sea on his fleet. I think he had like three ships and he termed himself the Commodore. He was the Commodore (laughs) of this, uh, of this fleet. Of the sea organization, white hat, a shitty white jacket, mm-hmm. and this again, this is something that's going to be prevalent going forward. This weird mockery or, you know, um, copying of like naval uniforms. If you just go on to you know Google and put in Scientology Sea Org, these guys look like they're in naval uniforms. They've got the rings around the sleeves. They have I don't know what you call the thread that goes down and over the shoulder and everything. They would have what looks like rank medals on their like chest where you would wear like your medals and your rank and your uh, ribbons for different, you know, campaigns and engagements and everything. So it was like, yeah, he got, <laughs> it, it was like, he was trying to almost kind of merge his, you know, lovely memories of his time in the Navy to make it almost seem like more legitimate. I think, I don't know, make it seem more recognized. He also wanted to make sure that his people knew that he was in the, in the position of power. Well, and it, it raised his level of, um, credibility, prominence. yeah, and he will see that going into some of the celebrities that he courted. But basically, he's chasing a high of adoration from these people that he's trying to separate himself, make himself the Commodore, make himself wear a dumb fucking hat, mm-hmm. be the guy that everybody knows who to take care of. And these members of the Sea Org were getting paid fucking pennies. Oh like yeah, fifty to sixty. It was cents the honor of hour. serving on. L. Ron Hubbard to be so close to the dear leader that well, they were willing. And well, he handpicked these people. Yeah. That for were the Sea Org. Exactly. That were like these devout Scientologists and had kind of exhibited, you know, the traits that he wanted to see. I think a lot of those traits, the top one had to be like uh, servility, servitude, mm-hmm. and basically, malle- you know, having a malleable mind to be able to just buy into whatever he would say. They kind of became, you know, the Sea Org was basically saw as like the elite kind of pseudo paramilitary group of Scientologists. And when he first brought this group out to, you know, get on the boat for the first time, the boat was just like a rusted hunk of shit. (laughs) And he forced them, um, again, for like pennies on the day to basically like scrub all the rust off of this thing to fix this boat up. And he would just come out and kind of watch them a little bit. And then, you know, when they would get to eat dinner and everything, he would join them for dinner and regale them with tales of, you know, the stars. And I think this is where he kind of first started verbally introducing the idea of what the galactic uh, confederation and warlords and that kind of stuff. Um, as far as like what he considered, what the space opera is what the term they use for it. Is that the term? Yeah. Well, backing up before the sea org, um, while he's running around on his boats, he's running around for good reason. Um, the IRS in 1958 went ahead and withdrew the 50 or withdrew the 501C, so the uh, tax exempt status for the church. So he he had it initially. Yeah, okay. he he'd gotten it, and I wonder if it was just easy as shit to get back then. I would assume. I mean, I, I can't say that it's if you have enough money, I'm sure you can make any of that stuff go on. Yeah, you don't need that many people to agree to do. You just need the right people in right positions. Yeah, and the IRS figured out that. 
L. Ron and his family were profiting off of the proceeds that were being given to the church. So, excuse me, since they were, that got taken away. So now, excuse me, every penny that flows into Scientology is taxable and needs to be taxed. Ron still has a very big issue with paying his taxes. And so instead of doing the right thing and paying taxes on the tremendous amounts of money that were coming in at the time, he went ahead and just basically defended himself. He put in three different kind of subtenants um, that they they ran with. Ethics technology um, is just basically going through, making sure that everybody is devoted to the cause, making sure that they're not taking in any information outside of the church that would run counter to the... No um, free thinking. The teachings, yeah. yeah. It, to keep the hive mind in line. Um, the second thing that he introduced was called knowledge reports. And these were just thorough, full background checks because he was so concerned that he was being infiltrated by people on the outside that were trying to come in and learn everything that was going on inside of Scientology. And he also, right around then... Um, started talking about suppressive persons. Mm-hmm. And SPs. SPs are pretty much anybody... Any sane person. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Willing to listen to the logical part of their mind and being like, hey, can you go back to that thing about the Galactic Overlord and the Confederation? I'm going to need you to elaborate on that a little bit. Ooh, you're not a believer. You're a suppressive person. Be gone with you. You're listening to two suppressive persons speaking on Scientology right mm. now. The last one that he introduced that is something that's used to just shocking levels today, uh, it was called the fair game policy. Now, the fair game policy basically gave any Scientologist who was a true devout Scientologist carte blanche to gain revenge, um, to do any sort of research on any suppressive persons. Basically, if you wrote anything negative about Scientologists, Scientologists were given carte blanche to do whatever they had to either shut you up or to counteract anything that you're trying to say. And they used everything from private investigators. It was a little um, bit of a Gestapo we. Yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. Is it I was forgot. be considered the Gestapo of the of Scientology. They were called GOs. Mm. I don't remember what GO stood for. Something officer, maybe, but like a Gestapo. Mm -hmm. And they were just basically a special security force that would kind of run these games on anybody that was a suppressive person. And utilizing essentially the auditing information that they would use, it would be real easy to shut somebody up as like, you know, we hear you're saying some disparaging things about Scientology. It would be a shame if all of this information that you'd shared with us during your auditing sessions were to become public. It could really make things difficult for you. I, yeah, it would be a shame if your your wife found out that you were checking out some other chick's ass mm-hmm. that you admitted to. Or yeah. That, that you had impure thoughts. And a lot of it that they used, I'm sure not all of it, but um, they would use your sexuality as blackmail. So if you were gay, if you were lesbian but you had a partner if it was something that you had suppressed, if you had one time in college where you sucked a couple dicks, that was all going to be on record, and they were going to use any of that against you that they could. Yeah, homosexuality was considered a mental illness, right? It was. They they would welcome you in. As soon as they welcomed you in, though, then you were just their fair game Mm -hmm. to be able to belittle mom. You're our property now. Yep. So you could do whatever you wanted to with them. And that... It just it's so odd to think that that's the ability that you can use as you gain all that 
just because somebody becomes a suppressive person. And when you're labeled a suppressive person, you are completely shunned. So if you're a family of five, if you're a father that has three children and a wife, every single one of those children, your wife, your family, anybody that's in their parents, relatives, anything like that, friends, just shun you. They they speak out against you. They say terrible things. They the term for it that they use is disconnection. It's yep. when they require anybody who still considers themselves loyal to Scientology and to that belief system to basically cut any and all means of communication or contact with you, regardless of your, because their viewpoint was not that, although this person was biologically your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, the whole thing was is you're an immortal being, so. Your body is just like, yeah, it may have been created by these two people as your mother and father, but your loyalty is to, you know, you're an immortal being. So you really don't have any ties to these people. So that disconnection, it, they didn't even, you know, it sounds like, how do you just like not talk to your mother or your father or your brother anymore? They're like, well, that's not really your mother or father or brother. All that is is a sack of meat that your body was born into mm-hmm. while your Thetan being yes. is... So from somewhere else. So there was almost a disconnection from yourself even prior to being disconnected from the church or being forced to be disconnected. They already set that groundwork in place of saying, well, no, you're not disconnecting with somebody who you share any type of like real connection with. Your connection is to this faith. And it seems like such an extreme thing, but the more that you let those suppressive people stay in there, the better their points are going to start sounding and it is going to start to unravel. So if you have a a loose end, you cut that loose end so it doesn't continue to unravel what you have going on. So in 67, after the establishment of the Sea Org, kind of while sailing around in international waters to avoid the IRS or any type of repercussions there. And it wasn't just the IRS. He was, like you said earlier, there were multiple ports that were after him for spreading bullshit. And I think France had a warrant out. He was supposed to do, he was indicted in France and he was like sentenced to four years, but they could never get him. Yeah, because he was international waters. Um, During this time, he introduces what's called the OT levels. Like you said, operating Thetan levels. I think part of this, just, you know, a rational mind would come out of this and, you know, you get to the status of clear. You're now clear. Well, what's next? What's going to keep people, you know, what's going to keep you in this? If you're already clear and, you know, you figure your problems are solved, you've resolved all these traumas that your Thetan is carrying, what's going to go ahead and keep you in this? Well, to me, being, you know, him being a businessman, he thought, well, I'll just create some new some new steps and some new levels. So that's when he creates the OT levels. And getting up to OT3 that's would the be, that's the, well, <laughs> it depends on how you see it. But that's where they actually, you're this able to. This is the to, make or break OT level. Yes. And at this point, did you read how much money you would have to be in it to get up to OT3? I didn't see OT3. I think I saw all of the steps, kind of a ballpark figure. I think when to even get up to OT3, they figured, and I don't know if they're basing this on inflation or anything, but to get to OT3, you would have had to pay or be up to about 300, between 380 and $400,000 before you would be able to get to OT3. And that's when they would provide you with, what do they call it? The paper. The paper. And the paper was the handwritten documents by good old L. Run or Elrond, that would explain the space opera and basically the entire history and lore behind Scientology and what they believed. The Wall of Fire. And the Wall of Fire, like we say, is the make or break. Um, Probably the most famous defector from the Church of Scientology, Leah Romini, Um, the lady from... 
uh, King of Queens. Yeah, King of Queens. Mm-hmm. Lady from King of Queens, also kind of a, a sneaky fox back in the oh, day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she got to OT3, and her story is was she was brought into a room. Um, you're given this piece of paper. This paper must always stay inside of a like a briefcase, something that is locked down because the mortal world can't get a hold of this no. paper. This is a very important document. And this is basically the creation story. So the Wall of Fire, just kind of surmise it, um, there's this galactic overlord. His name is Xenu. He rules the internet or the galactic confederacy of, what, 76 or 79 planets? Some just mm-hmm. outrageous number. But he is worried about overpopulation. Makes me think that maybe uh, Thanos could have been yeah. a, a similar featured character in this. Uh, so he goes ahead and takes Thetans, freezes them, brings them to a crazy world for Earth that I don't remember because it was such an odd name. Oh, where's the name of it? It is... Like, oh, God, I Ito had it written down. Or it's like Thenagar or something. Some, like, yeah. some goofy shit. Thankfully, we chose Earth because Thenagar would have been much tougher. Mm-hmm. He goes ahead and drops these frozen Thetan bodies. How many? How many was it? There's billions. They want to say like it was somewhere between like 150 billion or something like that. He transported them coincidentally in spaceships that looked exactly oh, yeah. like DC-10 <laughs> airplanes. Um, was the DC-10 the one that, uh, fuck, what was his name? Um, the guy that jumped out of the plane with the money. Uh, D.B. Cooper. I don't I th- know if it was a DC-10. I think his was like a DC-5 because it was okay. much smaller because it was only running from Oregon to Seattle. Yeah, but anyway, it was the plane that has the two engines in the back and everything. But these spaceships, they looked exactly like DC-10s. And they would transport these billions of people to this prison planet. Through space. Through space. Airplanes on present day traveling through space. Drop uh, them. Go ahead. But that was the other thing was these weren't like cave people. These were people that he described much as ourselves, that were dressed in the same attire. They would be listening to the same sorts of music. It was supposed to be like uh, 1960s London. was supposed Uh to be all these planets essentially were just modeled after like 1960s (laughs) London or some shit. They wore the same things. They drove cars that were the exact same as ours. It was basically just like a mirror image, except it took place on these, what, 76 other planets. Yeah, it's like it was the It's a Small World ride was just basically what space was. And so he loads all these um, prisoners up, all these frozen prisoners up onto these DC-10s, flies them to the prison planet that will become Earth, and drops them into volcanoes. Now, dropping these frozen beings into these volcanoes, that's not going to do it. So instead, he decides to fucking nuke these things, too, to make sure that they're dead. Dropping hydrogen bombs, which, again, we're talking about the 60s, 70s, so we're only living in the age of, what, like 30 years of the hydrogen bomb? Yeah, but he's not even being clever, man. He's literally just... Picking things like, okay, so atomic bombs are a thing now, so okay, he had those, and DC-10s are a thing now, so they just look like DC-10s. It's almost, it, he was trying to make it so, like, relatable and understandable to what you could, like, view in our world, that he completely missed the fact that there's no, like, really? Just fucking airplanes are flying through space, <laughs> and you just happen to have, like, nuclear weapons or atomic weapons to fucking kill these people? It's like he was too fucking dumb to figure out what the Jetsons would look like. It was too simple. He just went yeah. too simple on it. Um, so, yeah, after dropping the hydrogen bombs in the volcanoes, uh, the spirits, the Thetans, were released to walk amongst the Earth. and then. An oh, no, not before that. There's more before that. What happened before that? Okay, so after the Thetans are essentially released from their bodies, they would just be kind of like disembodied spirits, I guess. 
these disembodied spirits were captured and made to watch a 3D oh, movie right. for like, what, 36 hours or like three days? And it was supposed to show you all of this crazy imagery, but it was all like historical earth imagery. Like you would see things about the crucifixion and things like that. And they would basically be forced to watch this giant 3D movie. 3D After- had to have been fairly new at this point. It had to exist because he couldn't come up with it on his own. But um, so after they were forced to watch this, yeah, after they were forced to watch this, um, one of the caveats would be that the things would then kind of roam around or do, I guess, still roam around our planet. But once someone was born, a thing could then enter your body. Or multiple. Or multiple things could enter your body. And do you know one of the caveats about... um, people not having memories of any of this. Because essentially you're supposed to have this immortal, you know, inner self having experience of these past lives. But the thing was, is you couldn't have so much knowledge about this, like with Xenu and all that crazy shit. Because if you, your Thetan was able to remember that, you would die. I didn't see that part of yes. it. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. So if you, if you were... No, or if you knew what was going on, mm-hmm. that was the last thing that you would know, yes. and then you would die. Yeah, that's why so, no one could ever t- talk about it. That's why you had to find it out through the, what do you call it, the the paper? Yeah. Yeah. And as an OT, when you get to be an operating Thetan, supposedly you're able to start controlling things with your mind, you have all of the wisdom in the world, so then moving up through the steps of the OT program, by the time you get to three you're ready to not pop like a cherry when you read the paper. You are, you're of a, an operating level high enough to where you can survive this. Instead of a, what the fuck you were supposed to have a, yeah, makes sense. Uh, Which basically means that you have dumped so many resources into this and you have leveraged yourself so far in that by the time you read this, they're just banking on you being a diminished cost. Be like, well, I'm in this deep. I might as well keep climbing the ranks. I think there's eight or nine levels of OT. Uh, eight, I think, is the top one. I'm assured that if enough people re- reached eight, there would all of a sudden become secret new texts that were revealed that there's multiple more operating levels. The thing is, too, is it was almost tying you to it through you know multiple means. So first of all, you're already in it for a shit ton of money. Not only that, that if you're in it this long, chances are, because of the whole uh, suppressive person's belief, is that Anybody that you knew and all of your skill sets would probably be very intrinsically tied to Scientology. So at the point when you would reach OT3 and you read the paper full of the largest selection of horseshit, you would be so committed to it that you didn't even – there was a fear that you couldn't leave because what would you be – you'd be leaving all of your friends would disconnect from you. You would be starting off back at square one. And, you know, that's pretty fucking scary. Especially if you are at an age where you are an adult. Like, there's no going back to school. There's no trying to reconnect. You're 30 years old. You have no Trying to reestablish all of your, build all these new relationships with people outside of this. And then not have those people look at you for what you've been doing for the last however many years. And be like, no, we don't want to fucking associate with you. So, you know, part of... This makes me think of the the Sunny, the Ass Kickers United, mm-hmm. when um, Dennis is trying to stop Mac from eating his Girl Scout cookies, so he creates Ass Kickers United. Mm-hmm. But then Frank tries to take it another step further because he wants to see somebody eat a shit sandwich. Mm-hmm. This feels like the the shit sandwich eating doctor and that Frank finally gets them to where he finally tricks the dude into eating the doo-doo sandwich. You're so far in that, and maybe some of this stuff at this point, if you're in it this far, you're still in it because some of these very basic skills 
that have made you possibly more successful in just your day-to-day life, those have helped you enough or you've been, you know, conditioned to believe that they've helped you enough that you're looking at this and it's like, okay, if I have to believe this, but I get all of this out of it that's been working for me, I guess I go along with it. And you see every other operating Thetan that's above level three that you know who's still in the program and still making it happen. So then it makes you wonder, well, they got it and they're still in. So Mm -hmm. clearly, am I crazy for thinking that this is crazy? Everybody else is doing okay. But you can't talk about if you're feeling crazy because then you'll be labeled as a suppressive suppressive person if you have any doubts on it. So you're just chasing your tail hoping Mm -hmm. to continue on. Luckily, Leah Romini got it at this point. She said after she read it, she was just kind of like, what the fuck? This is really everything that we've been doing. Well, this is what's led to the decline. So when Scientology was at its peak, I think it was somewhere within like the 50s and 60s. It may have been like the 60s up to the 70s. They said they had somewhere in the neighborhood of like 100,000, which I know that doesn't sound a lot when you compare it to any like widespread religion, like actually recognized religion, which I don't know why any are recognized. But um, once people were able to start finding out, because again, like the Leah Remini situation, you're going to find this out and get out. Well, there are multiple people that are going to be doing that. And how long is it going to be before somebody finally is like, can I talk to you about something? I'd like to talk to you about what Scientology actually believes. As soon as that information comes out and then becomes widespread, your membership numbers, you're not going to have a... a Super decline. Yeah, you're not going to have a, a large pool of people to keep pulling into this. People are going to be more skeptical from even getting in at the get-go. And they've always lied about their membership records and their roles. They made it sound bigger than it was. I do think at a point it probably was six digits. Now they say that it's like hundreds of thousands still. But as far as they can tell from the numbers, it's somewhere around like 20,000 maybe. I think they set up to 40. 40? Yeah. So, but that's, that still may be a an much inflated number. Than, that's yeah. only based upon people providing information about what, you know, if, if these people probably have done some digging into it, you know, we, we, between the two of us, I don't know how much shit we watched on this and information, but those people, you know, if they're just going off of what Scientology tells them, then it's going to be up, you know, those six digits, even more probably in the millions and everything. But these were people that were actually able to determine what the, the actual numbers were. And I think they kind of estimated Scientologists worldwide were around 40,000. If that. Hey, which is, I mean, that's a, a small following, but that's still a lot of people. Depends on I mean, how rich those people are. Yeah, that's a, a small city. Mm-hmm. And like you say, yeah, you, you don't need everybody to be rich. And that's one thing that I've always kind of taken away realizing this is Scientology is not driven towards poor people. Like you're not, you're not going out there. Every other religion talks about bring me your poor, your sick, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff so we can heal them. We can make them better. We can bring them into the Lord's grace. This was more like if you were a homeless person on the outside of a Scientology building and you're like, hey, I want to know more about this. Like, hey, you're pretty dirty. You probably haven't had a meal in a day or two. You have maybe $2 in your pocket. This isn't right for you. They would pull in some of those people, but those people would be used essentially for like the menial labor. Yeah, and it, like would the be, fucking, yeah. it would be working people. It wouldn't be, they wouldn't be climbing the ranks because they couldn't afford an auditing session because mm-hmm. they didn't have any money. Once you got into there, like we said, these people were being paid cents a day. Mm-hmm. Like two, then, three dollars if you're having a good day. And then what were you doing with that money except probably pouring it right back into trying to, you know, climb the ranks of Scientology? Get your next auditing session mm-hmm. so you can continue to push out those engrams. So um, in 1975, or was it, okay, let's get into this, the couple of operations that he actually did. Yeah, the 70s were a very hard time for the Ron. 
he the legal troubles were mounting because again, like we talked about, man was not paying taxes. No. He was completely pushing that away. He had these other ports that he was traveling to around kind of the Mediterranean. They were like, eh, you can't show up here. Um, we're just going to arrest you on site when we see you. And in 73, he started the Snow White program. The Snow White program was a very desperate move, mm-hmm. I would say. So the Snow White program was essentially he would be sending in Scientologists to... Operatives. Operatives, yeah. Scientologist operatives to uh, the IRS, FBI, basically anybody that would have had dirt on him. Then stealing all of the files on the Ron, which, again, if you're the IRS, you're like, hey, where's the Hubbard account? Like, I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know? I, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I mean, this shit's fucking probably like a whole filing cabinet long. Oh, yeah. Big. And it's just like that just disappears. Mm-hmm. So immediately you're going to start questioning these people. And hopefully the government had better background checks to be like, where's this guy been the last 10 years? Yeah. No school, no nothing. He's something called a C org. And oh, we forgot the best part about the C orgs the contract. Oh, yes. Yes. So the Sea Orgs were meant to sign a contract, much like you do when you would enter the military, um, where you would give your enlistment date, and your contract didn't expire for one billion years. Because you're an immortal being. So yep. the next time you hop into another body and your thing leaves you and you get that new person. Hey, Still Scientologist. You, you got it you, as soon as – and they gave you a grace period, I think, that you weren't required after you had – Lost your previous mm-hmm. meat suit. You were allotted like what eighteen years, something like that, before you came back into the fold, and you were required to come back in and start serving again. A cooling off period, if you will, to maybe get your feet wet back in your new mortal well, body. Well, we have to let, give you time to get some money. True, because yeah. once you come back in, you know that Thetan might have been joined by other things, and you need to go ahead and you know take your auditing again and try to go clear, and then get back up to that point. So it was just this repetitive nature of trying to just milk you for everything you could have. And not just you, but the new you or the future you or whatever. The first time somebody made me sign a billion-year contract, that would be a, a, an immediate red flag. Like, eh, we're not talking about numbers and means. I don't know. It's like the whole galaxy is like six billion years old or something like that, the mm. universe. Or four billion, something like that. So we're talking about a quarter of the time that the universe has been around is oh, the yeah. time that I have to serve. That's too much commitment for Well, me. no, in Scientology, it's like 75 billion years. Okay. Because that's when the shit with like Xenu and stuff like that had started to occur. So, um, too much commitment. Can't yeah. do it. L- little, just, you're asking just a little bit too much. Um, so in 75, he actually returns to the U.S. and hides out in the California desert and this was after another operation that they tried to run called, did you hear Operation Normandy? Uh, it sounds familiar. That was the plan to take over the town of Clearwater, Florida. Oh, okay. And Which is to, where their headquarters is today. What they call flag or something uh-huh. like that. Yeah, like because he had his flagship that he was on, but then when he started the place in Clearwater, then that became what they called flag. Well, it wasn't a ship anymore, so they could just call it flag. <laughs> there you go. Um, now, as part of, you know, both for the Snow White program and everything, 11 high-ranking members of Scientology were indicted on 28 charges. They and raided all these geo offices in 1977. And instead of burning this paperwork, instead of getting rid of the evidence trail, they just kept it. Mm-hmm. Why in the world would you keep it? If you're going to go to those lengths to break in and steal this shit, fucking get rid of it. Don't keep it around. And at this point, he had... Did he have a new wife at this point as well? Because they're... Uh, 
Mary Sue was indicted. Okay. Yeah. Mary Sue. So we didn't talk about Mary Sue at all. So at some point he met this other woman named Mary Sue. Um, maybe it would be Mary Sue Hubbard. She was the, um, like the secretary and the person that conducted the media relations back when Dianetics was failing and Scientology was coming aboard. Mm -hmm. So she was just another young girl. Hubbard had himself a type and it was a young type. And so she fit the bill. She became Mrs. Hubbard again. So Northrop probably got out a little late, but was probably okay. Um, first wife, definitely. Polly definitely got out at the right time. Yeah. And uh, Mary Sue went ahead and stuck around long enough to be indicted. While she was indicted, um, Elron was considered an unindicted co-conspirator, but never faced any jail time. Well, they, I don't even think they could find him because at that point he returned to the United States after Operation Normandy and he was hiding out in the California desert. Things got a little weird for him out in the desert. Well, he ended up spending the rest of his life living in like a luxury RV out at a ranch in California. He had two members and I'm, I'm forgetting their names. They went out with him and they were basically kind of like his caregivers. And towards the end of his life, he had had, I think, a stroke previous to this that it knocked a few things loose. And he, like I was talking about earlier, he started believing his own bullshit that he was actually asking the male that was watching out for him if he could create an e-meter that would kill his mortal being and yeah. release his Thetan. So mm. what this guy did was he essentially connected a... Juice this fucker up. Yeah, it was a... Um, what's the crazy dude? That got all of his stuff ripped off. Not Einstein, but um, Tesla. Oh, test test, yeah. yeah he, he connected a Tesla coil to the e-meter um, as they were doing an auditing session. Hubbard had said something. E-meter registered, fired up the Tesla coil, and it shocked the shit out of him. Completely fried the e-meter, but it didn't kill him. Yeah. So it was just basically for show. But Hubbard was willing to basically kill himself to try to rid himself of the demons that were ravaging his body. And during the 80s, um, there was a, a younger guy in the Sea Org that kind of became, I don't know if he necessarily became the number two, because again, there were so many organizations within this. The Sea Org was kind of the creme de la creme of it, but he also had leadership in all these different roles. But there was one guy in the Sea Org named uh, David Miscavige. And kind of during the 80s, I think he kind of took over as like the head of the church, but like a head like in title. Well, it was still Elrond's show, but he was kind of the front-facing person that was trusted to to kind of be the one that ran the company. He was the like chairman of the board or the something day -to -day like that. Guy. Yeah, and Miscavige <coughs> has his own weird origin story into finding Scientology. Uh, just a, a quick rundown: when he was a kid, he had just terrible, terrible asthma, and would have these just traumatic asthma attacks. Mm -hmm. His dad didn't know what to do with him. Um, they had taken him to a million different doctors. I don't know if inhalers were maybe on the brink of understanding. I'm assuming they probably had inhalers figured out for asthma. But couldn't get it figured out. Um, his father had a friend who was a Scientologist. Brought him into the fold. They did an auditing session. Miscavige came back out. And allegedly, he had never had another asthmatic event after that. Like a debilitating one. He was nine when he went in for that auditing session. Uh, he came was out. Was it nine or eleven? Yeah, uh, nine. Nine. Okay. And when he came out, he was like, "I'm cured." And so, 
um, I was actually listening to a podcast with his dad. Yeah. And his dad had gotten out and everything like that, but... Did he you was, hear his dad talk about how he got sucked in in the beginning with the headaches? No. So uh, he had a friend previous to this, and I think this is probably why they took or why he took David back to Scientology. But the friend told him that if he suffered from a headache, the trick to do it, and this isn't an endorsement for Scientology, I don't believe this is true, uh, definitely not a, a doctoral thing, said to look yourself in the mirror, see yourself in the mirror and see the reflection as a separate person, and then to go ahead and mentally give them the pain of the headache that you're having. Like a transference type yeah, thing? transfer it over to that other being so then you wouldn't have the headache. Dad said he tried it the first time and it worked. I'm assuming this is more of a placebo effect, mm-hmm. something that'll just make you feel good. Sort of a distraction away from what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, Miskevich still had asthma attacks, but they just supposedly weren't as bad. Call it growing up, call it a better regimen. I, I had asthma growing up, and after a certain age, you just, you can, like, there are people that don't get rid of it, they can have chronic asthma, mm. but I had to use an inhaler when I was a kid up until the point where maybe I was, like, 13 or 14, and then it just naturally, it you never, I don't think, get rid of it because it's a lifelong thing. Your bronchial but, tubes just get strong enough to... Yeah, and so any and all symptoms, like, you know, are completely gone. And you can just operate as if you don't even have it. But again, it's it's this weird thing where they're able to con- almost, you know, psychosomatically, they can tell you it's your thought processes and the way that you're behaving or what's actually prompting, prompting or, you know, exacerbating your symptoms mm-hmm. or your diseases. And yeah, we'll if give you have you stressors in life, it can lead to these things manifesting themselves. And it's not you, though. It's the previous, <laughs> you know, traumas of your thetan. So once you get those and become clear, then you shouldn't have any issues with any of this. You should be in more control of, you know, if you do have any type of illness. Miskevich was kind of a wonderkin. Like he, he took to auditing really well. Um, they considered him to be a master auditor at a very young age. He really went around and just kind of did everything that he needed to. Essentially, he was kind of Elrond's right hand man. At a very young age. Mm-hmm. So he was... He was groomed mm-hmm. very, very extensively. Um, so much so that when Elrond finally did... Now, he didn't die. Elrond didn't die. <laughs> Elrond's meat suit died. And he died in 86, uh, 74 years old. Basically, how they announced this is the leaders announced that his spirit had chosen to left his... or. Elrond had chosen to allow his spirit to leave his body to continue his research on another plane of existence. And he chose to do that when his body became such an impediment and an inhibitor that he could no longer do that within his body. Wonderful story. A very, very nice way to put it that he's going to operate on a metaphysical level. He will still be able to watch. Mm -hmm. He's still there. He's still able to watch everything. And, you know, you got to make sure the big boss man keeps things in check. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Well, and it's never more prevalent. If you did, you see any images of like their yearly award ceremony yeah. and all that kind of shit? How yeah. they have that big ass frame picture of him like up off the side of the stage, and they'll fucking salute it and like talk to it and everything. Very weird, very awkward. Yes. The saluting of the picture gives me a very to LRH feel. and everything. That I do like that they shortened it because L. Ron Hubbard was too much that they just call him LRH. Mm-hmm. It sounds more. It does have more gravitas to it. Yeah, there's a little bit more je ne sais quoi to it. So he had a stroke, um, died a week later, and because of his religious practices, all they could do was just basically run like a, a basic autopsy to figure out what had killed him. 
Uh, they couldn't go into really anything else. Or what he allowed to kill his meat suit. Yeah, there were, uh, I heard some kind of off things from um, either documentaries or podcasts talking about that they may have found actually like jet fuel that had been injected into his system. So I don't know DC if he was... DC-10 jet fuel? Could to, yeah. to, to power the spaceship that he was going to be using? Could have been. Yeah, maybe he was on some Heaven's Gate shit and he was looking to try to get to the hail bob or something. But yeah, just a, a very weird ending. And that is so much of Elrond's influence in Scientology. These things kept going. Um, Miscavige is just fraught with all sorts of issues now. He basically made a power play to try to take the church over and to rule it in a way where he had total control over it, but he also had levels of protection in case anything happened. And in 1992, Scientology got its 501c back. They got its tax-exempt status back. And the way that they did it was actually they hired um, private investigators Mm -hmm. to go after high-ranking members of the IRS. And to go after them, they would follow them around at like conferences they would see at conferences that these members of the IRS were billing everything to the American public mm-hmm. as far as like food and drinks mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. They were looking into them to see relationships just to get any leverage that they could. And Try they to started, turn public opinion, essentially. No one likes the IRS. No. They fucking take your taxes. No, yeah, a very easy person to hate. Yeah. And along with that, they were filing all these... Um, Lawsuits. Yeah, legal suits for $750,000 at a time, just trying to take as big a chunk as possible out of it. I think they were going after them for, it was something like a billion dollars in back taxes. Yep. And at the time, Liquid, um, the church only had like $250 million. Yeah, were they, the kind of the key point during that whole lawsuit is they didn't file lawsuits against the IRS directly, like as a government agency. They would file these lawsuits against individual members of the IRS to where at that point, when litigation occurred, those people would either have to participate in the litigation because it wasn't just where the IRS would be able to be represented by, you know, one overseeing body or, you know, legal team or something like that. And basically through all of this pressure for these lawsuits, um, David Miscavige met with some of the guys and he's like, you know, if this tax exempt status thing ends up working out, all this stuff will disappear overnight. And then lo and behold, guess what? They gave him tax exempt status and same it happened. Yep. All of this stuff, all these lawsuits were instantly dropped. There were like twenty thousand lawsuits. Jesus Christ. Because they were going after they they had almost everybody within Scientology not everybody, but they had so many people within Scientology, they were like, Okay, so you're gonna file a lawsuit, we're gonna go and get the paperwork ready for you, and then you're just gonna sign it. And so all of this stuff dropped off as soon as they were able to get their tax exempt status back. Um, there's a video of one of the, I guess it's just Scientology conferences or something like that. They look like a weird version of like the Oscars, like with the backdrop and all this kind of shit. Very much so. There's a real award show feeling to it. Yeah. And so one of the things he's given a speech and he is announcing essentially that as of this day, Scientology has been given our tax exempt status. Everyone cheers. And then he's like, I've only have one more thing to say on this. And he turned and looked up at the picture that was on the stage hanging up, and he's like, job done, sir. The war is over. Yep, the war is over. Because he even mentioned that. He's like, there's a war coming. And it was essentially the war against the IRS for this you know, tax exemption. It was life or death for, you know, I wish it would have ended up with death. 
But it was a life or death thing for the church because, like you said, they owed somewhere near a billion dollars in back taxes, and they only had, as far as assets, that they could utilize like $250 million. So if that wouldn't have occurred, essentially the church would have been dead in the water, but they pulled out every single trick that they could, and somehow someone just caved in. Uh, well, yeah, and that was part of the leverage was they told the IRS, if you go ahead and grant us this tax-exempt status, we'll make all this go away overnight. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the IRS is like, holy shit, why don't we do that? Yeah. It, it, it's no sweat off our asses because they're already not paying us. So if we just forgive that and give them tax-exempt status, we don't have to worry about these people following us 24-7 to see what the fuck we're up to. And at that point, how much do you think they ever expected, even if they didn't grant the tax-exempt status? Did they think they were going to see any of that money? No, the Scientology would have just dissolved or it would have transferred assets into another corporation that couldn't be touched because mm-hmm. it essentially it was a wasn't tight. Yeah, exactly. And so after that, I mean, that I think is, they say that's one of the biggest things that allowed Miscavige to essentially seize that lead role is he was able to accomplish essentially this huge goal of L. Ron Hubbard. And so people saw him as the person able to essentially carry them going forward. And I'm going to grab a drink of water. Yeah. And then we're going to get into, because there's so much shit. Now, this is when all of the like crazy, like not... You know, we've already talked about the crazy, like, aspects of, like, the galactic shit and everything mm-hmm. like that. This is when now shit gets just, like, dirty. We went over the fantastical. Now it gets to the real world, just bad things. All right, we'll be right back. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod. And our Twitter is historically high. That's historically HI. All right. And back to our show. All right. So at this point going forward, uh, Miscavige, up until even now, he's the de facto overlord, dictator, whatever you want to call it, um, of Scientology. And this, you know, because of the internet and because of the, you know, widely available information, this is kind of, I think, what also leads to the current decline that Scientology is and with its membership and everything is that David Miscavige comes in and basically is kind of taking a combination, I feel like, of he's using L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, foundation, everything like that, but he's also taking these other types of you know, principles like the knowledge reports and, you know, the fair game policy, he's, he takes that to an extreme level now. Well, he's turning it <clears throat> into a business. Yeah. Which and and it, weaponizing it, this stuff. It, it certainly was a business before, but he's looking at the church now and I, who knows, maybe he has to cling to the ideologies to be able to keep himself in. But he's trying to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. So he's he's courting these big celebrities. Actually, excuse me, they were courted before, but things are starting to change as far as the amount of love that they're getting. Well, I mean, that, that started too with Elrond when he opened. So a place that they have a Scientology church. I'm sure if you guys have watched you know any type of like TV or anything like that, it's that big ass fucking purple building in Los Angeles that just says fucking Scientology really big on it. And then has their weird, it's the cross, but it's got also like the other points. So it's like two the eight-pointed. Two yeah. triangles on the S. Yeah. And... They open this place, Elrond has them open this place called the Celebrity Center. And its sole goal was to essentially bring in people that had some type of celebrity or prominence that could, first of all, if you're a celebrity, you're going to have money. 
So it's a source of income. And then secondly, it's going to kind of lend some legitimacy if you can see people that people look up to and people see operating at a very high level and they're saying, well, yeah, I'm a Scientologist. They're going to be like, well, shit, if it's working for that guy, I got to get in on that. Um, who was in first? Was it Cruz or Travolta? Travolta was in first. Okay, so Travolta, how did he get in? Um, I want to say it was it was before he even really started getting rules, but he was introduced into it. I can't remember exactly who, but he ends up getting into it. And when he first starts getting into it, again, you don't reach OT3 for a, a quite a long time. No. Um, so he gets into it, and he's following just their you know basic entry-level principles about increasing your, you know, personal relations, you know, and your communications abilities and things like that. And he's able to utilize that. And he pretty much gives, you know, um, credit to that for allowing him to achieve like the star status that he did within, I think a few months or something like that of being in Scientology, he booked like, welcome back Cotter. And that Uh was kind of his launching point for it. And I want to say his wife, Kelly Preston, um, she was also a Scientologist. I'm not sure if she was born into it or came into it as, you know, part of the deal with being with him or if she was already in it and that's kind of how they met. But I know that she, you know, she was also an actress. Um, but he still, I mean, there's certain interviews that, you know, they'll have with him on set that are available. I think it was on that going clear yep. as they had, he's dressed in like a military uniform. Uh-huh. I think he it was, was during, I can't remember yeah. what movie that would have been, but yeah, uh, the way he talks about it, he's very, Whenever you hear someone talk about it, they only ever touch on that first, basically the Dianetics portion of it, on how to improve and become your best self. At no point does anybody acknowledge, get into, or even mention anything about this fucking galactic fucking Xenu shit. Oh, his his big push in that interview is, um, basically he says that Scientology's core tenets are to um, love everyone that there is no war between nations or forgiveness. Anything, everything's peace. And I forgot what the third one is like the the knowledge of all man being shared to the world, something just very esoteric that sounds very real. lofty and benevolent. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it has really like noble goals to it. And of course you hear something like that. You're like, yeah, that sounds nice. I'd like everybody to get along. I like people not to be at war with each other or anything. Um, well, and he, he really sounds like he, to me, when I see it happen, like when I see an interview with a Scientologist, it's almost like there's a thousand yard stairs if they're trying to re it's remember going, like a script. Yeah, it's going back to their program to be like, what am I supposed to say? What am uh-huh. I supposed to say? Don't let the crazy out. I got to mm-hmm. get through all the normal shit to really make this I'm happen. only able to read you the first three chapters of this book. That's all I'm allowed to do. Um, so he gets into it and then... He allegedly has a a go-card in Scientology that Scientologists are known that uh, Travolta has basically a free pass to kill anybody that he wants. And if you are a member of Scientology and you see that um, Travolta killed somebody, you're not only supposed to look the other way, but you're supposed to help him not get caught. So I don't know how true that is. It's just alleged, but... We just talked about an intergalactic warlord <laughs> yeah, from a 75 billion like, years ago. Like, there's there's no common sense within this shit. There's only things that are in the confines of what they would consider, what, human law? That they have to try to work around to, to maintain their autonomy or to be able to operate. Well, yeah, and even then, I mean, that's that's only human law. So, Thetans can continue to thrive outside of that mm-hmm. somewhere else. 
So they, I mean, they, they surround these people with just everything that they can and give them things like they can kill people. But Travolta had like a, a full on entourage where he had like a liaison with Scientology mm-hmm. and she was a part of the going clear documentary where she would follow him to set. She would travel with him. They would take care of all the kind of the business end of the Scientology. She was stuff. there to basically his handler, his yeah. Scientology handler to make sure he had whatever he needed, make sure he wasn't doing anything outside what they felt was appropriate for, you know, him representing Scientology. Um, and Any how, sort of like litigation or weird shit that comes out about him, like him supposedly sucking a dick, having a boyfriend, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. The the things that hit the front page of like Star Magazine, um, Scientology was using their lawyers to go out and protect him from these different issues that were popping up as far as people. Everybody that had junk on Travolta that was trying to get it out, Scientology wanted to squash it because those were their bargaining chips that we or that they could hold. Yeah, the over other him. the other side of that, I think, I don't know if I mentioned in that going clear if I read it somewhere else, but they also almost use that as a way of control where there's a possibility that they may have leaked a little bit of that information and then made that information go away uh, as kind of an example, being like, see what we can do. This could happen. Yes, this could happen. If we weren't here, if we weren't here to save you from this, imagine what could have happened during this. And I can't remember what was his handler's name. She was Bucky, something like that. Yeah, it was some weird like nickname like that. So she ended up getting pregnant. She had been in it for a long time, and they had become really good friends enough so to where he was at her wedding, (laughs) and um, she ended up having a kid. Which there's an entire. I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole because it's even more depressing and crazy than this shit. But there's this entire, you know, system where they were talking about like being forced to get abortions within Scientology and everything. Um, She ends up having a a baby. The baby is almost kind of removed, like taken from her. To the child's wing. To the child's wing or whatever they fucking called it. Um, And when she went to go like check on the status and like the welfare of her kids, she found that the kids were being completely neglected. Her kid had like fruit flies, flies, um, some type of infection to where her eyes were like, you know, crusted shut and everything. And she took her kid and she was able to make communication with somebody outside. It was in Travolta's circle. It was in, but it was someone outside of Scientology, um, that she'd become friends with, let her know what was happening and was basically able to engineer an escape and how they did that is she had her baby. She was like, I think I need to take the baby to a doctor. She had a handler with her, like a security Bodyguard. guard. Yeah. And so her friend, and they arranged a time when her friend was going to show up. Her friend shows up and basically quickly she jumps in the car. And as soon as the door is shut before the guy has a chance to react, the friend just fucking floors it and gets him out of there. Um, that's not the only escapes having to happen like this. Um, David Miscavige's father, Ron... Uh, David Miscavige's father, Ron, he was in it for, I think, 40-some years, um, and he had to take six months in order to go ahead and plan his escape. He was what they considered a sensitive particle because he was the father of essentially their leader, and anything that was coming out of his mouth or that he could relate to the public would probably bear a little bit more weight. Oh, absolutely. And everything. So... It took him and his wife six months of planning of, you know, uh, putting away what little money they had. He described it even like in a very understandable way of why people couldn't leave, especially if they'd been in a long time. 
in a long time, it's not just the the hold that it has over you from a belief perspective. It's they have a hold over you financially to where to go out on your own is almost kind of a a version of suicide. Absolutely. And so, you know, where you're getting paid at this point, and this was, I think, even before... No, no, this wasn't before the tax exempt thing. It might have been before and after. But when you're getting paid, I think he ended up getting up to $50 a week <laughs> is what his pay was. And he was like a higher ranking member of the Sea Org. Um, once David got into power too, he wouldn't even like, he got in trouble for addressing David as son. Like in any type Jesus. of like public events, he couldn't even say son. He had to address him as David. Um his father wasn't immune to punishments or anything. His father was a musician even beforehand, like a saxophone player who had actually played with like Isaac Hayes, who um, those of you that aren't familiar, Isaac Hayes was the original voice of chef on South Park. And the church actually made him leave the show and quit it after South Park came out with the stuck in the closet. Yeah. The stuck in the closet episode about Scientology. And so he would play like, um, on gigs, like on their ships and stuff like that. I think it was for some type of like anniversary celebration. And um, Dougie Fresh, the beatboxer and rapper, also a Scientologist, he was up there and he was, they were playing, you know, the band behind him. And he started saying some stuff that wasn't like super disparaging about Scientology. Might not even been disparaging at all, but it wasn't what the, you know, David wanted to hear. It wasn't the script. It wasn't the script. So the band, not, Dougie Fresh, I'm sure he had his own shit to deal with, but the band was sent down to the bilge pump room on the ship and forced to work in the bilge pump room. And when his, you know, Ron, his father was asking about it, he's like, what did you, he's like, I didn't even say anything. It was this guy. He's like, yeah, but you were leading the band. So you should have just started playing music over him to go ahead and get him to into his next song or to stop him from playing this. And so $50 a week, he's paying into social security all he can but when you're only making $50 a week, you're probably not paying into it so much. No. So when he was able to withdraw Social Security, it was very little, plus the $50. It took him a long time to save up enough money to be able to make an escape. And just the way he describes it of basically having to – they didn't want to leave all of their possessions because that's all they had. So his wife, her mother, was not in Scientology. She lived in Wisconsin or something. And he's down in Florida, I think, at this point. They It was her 70th birthday. So to disguise it, they started sending her presents. They were going to send her 70 presents for her 70th birthday. And they started sending stuff that seemed kind of innocuous, but, you know, that she would never use. But it was all of their possessions that they were... Because with Scientology, with letters, anything that you were sending out, phone calls, letters, anything like that, yeah, it had to be... So letters had to be in unsealed envelopes. You had to give it to security. They had to review it. If there was anything they didn't like, they gave it back to you, made you start over and redo it. Then once they approved it, they allowed you to seal the envelope and send it off. Same thing with phone calls. You would have to have someone basically listening on the other line. So if you were to start saying, you know, something, click, call the disconnect. So he basically planned this escape where he finally had everything down to just some clothes that they could get in the car. Um, he was staying at this. Um, it basically was a compound. It was surrounded, a, a huge compound. You can look up the property holdings of Scientology, and that's where they actually have all of their money really invested. But it's incredible. They have billions of dollars just in real estate. But these places are empty buildings. Yeah, they I, say you'll go into these places, and of course, there'll be someone in the lobby and things like that to make it seem like it's busy, but they're just empty buildings. There's nothing going on there. They're using it essentially to just hold this money. Well, they remodel them. They make them 
worth five times what they were before, mm-hmm. and then they just sit vacant and unused because it's just a front. Yeah. And so um, he's down in this compound, I want to say, in Florida, and it's got barbed wire on the fucking fences. Makes and sense. so he's like, it's not like you could just make... He's like, I'm also like 75 at this point. He's like, I can't make a fucking running escape and get over this fence. <laughs> he's like, plus my wife is there. And so he ends up loading... He basically said, I had to familiarize myself for the six months with all of the guards there and kind of build myself a pattern of doing things to when I went to make my escape, it simply looked like I was just doing my normal thing. So they weren't allowed to have refrigerators or anything like that in their rooms or living quarters. They had to go to like a cafeteria to store everything. So the level of independence that they would take away from these people was insane. And so he would go and talk to these security guards and bring them like, you know, snacks and everything. So, He's loading up some shoes in a car and security guard comes up and checks on him. And he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Security guard doesn't pay any attention. Another guy comes up. He's loading cars or clothes into his car. He's not paying attention. He just thinks it's kind of a normal thing. He might be going to do laundry on the compound or some shit like that. And so he said as soon as he had that done, he planned it at a time when he knew the guards would be in the mess hall, whatever, and were away from the guard post. Well, to get out, you had to get through a security gate. And so if you got to the security gate, there was a button to work the gate. But normally with someone in the guardhouse, you would press the button. They'd be like, hey, what's going on? Where are you going? If you weren't allowed to leave, they had a what they called a pursuit car where they would be able to chase you down in it. And everything he, you're describing sounds just like prison. Yes. This is a voluntary oh, thing. Oh, there's, there's so much. There, they had multiple compounds where they would do this. A bunch of senior leadership got we'll talk about sent the to hole. this place. The, the hole is its own special. Okay, we'll do the hole in a second. But anyway... So he ended up timing it to where both of the security guards were like at the mess hall. He got to the gate, pressed the button, and he's like, if anyone would have answered that and asked what was happening, I would have been caught. Thankfully, no one answered. The gate opened. I came to like a three-pronged intersection in the road, um, right and left, or straight and right would take you to the freeway, which would they would suspect you if you were leaving to go. Left took you into like another town where they didn't really expect you to go. He's like, we went left, and then we were able to make our way up to Wisconsin to stay with my mother, my mother-in-law. Well, like months later, all of a sudden they're having dinner and they notice someone outside and came out. It was guys like, hey, I thought you could get away from us. And they were trying to be all casual about it. We're telling them, hey, you know, just come back. You know, we'll take you out to a nice dinner. We'll go ahead and get this whole thing squared away. And then once we get you back to, you know, Clearwater, get your own apartment. We can get, you know, one on the compound where it's going to actually have, you know, a kitchen. We know you love to cook. Just trying to promise him the start. It's going to get better. He's like, fuck no. He's like, this has been horrible for me my entire life looking back on it. I'm finally free. (laughs) And my son's the leader. And then at some point too, there was a situation where he, um, someone was spying on them and trying to buy, they would buy houses across from people who got, who left the church. The only way you were able to leave the church is if they kicked you out of the church. That's the only time that you were allowed to leave. It was a thing called leave and leaves. And it was the policy on when you could leave. And the only thing it said is you can only leave if we kick you out for essentially being a SP or whatever. Well, there was a guy that was monitoring them and was trying to buy a house within the same neighborhood. And they called the cops on him. The cops came and interrogated this guy and had him open his trunk. He had... I want to say a stun gun, two handguns, two rifles, one with a silencer on it, and 2,000 rounds of ammunition. And so they brought that guy in, interrogated him. There was another instance where, and again, take take this with a grain of salt, but 
with all the batshit stuff going on here, it's probably not hard to make the connections. Not He's, a leap. Yeah. He said he was at the grocery store one time and he was bent over loading the groceries and his something started to slip out of like his chest pocket. He was wearing a shirt with one of those pockets and he went to go grab it back in his shirt and like kind of clutched his chest and everything. Well, come to find out when that happened, the people that were surveilling him thought he was having a heart attack called in got a hold of David Miscavige and David Miscavige was basically like, eh, if it's his time, if it's time, don't intervene. And basically allowed, had it been happening to allow his father to die. That's where all the secrets go. And that was his dad. Um, well, no, not his dad. It was just a Thetan, a suppressive person yeah. at that point. He didn't recognize him at a certain point as his father. No. I, and I'm sure that probably helped him disconnect from it. But he, had his fatherly meat sack died at that point, the secrets would have died too. And one thing that's really, really kind of helped start to unravel things and hopefully kind of gain ground on getting rid of their tax exempt status is Miscavige took, he wanted to take full control of everything. He didn't want anybody questioning or doubting him. So he took the leaders of the Sea Org and he brought them to down to Florida, down to the flag, and they put two double wide trailers in. I don't know how many people were in there. I assuming it was probably a few. Um, but he basically locked them in these double wide trailers, and this is where they lived and subsisted. The only way out was a guarded door in the front. It was infested with ants. They had terrible food, and he would just try to flip these people on each other to talk to, like, hey. This guy said that he's kind of thinking about leaving. He's a little bit concerned with what's going on. He's questioning me. You need to go kick his ass. He was trying to pit them against each other to continue to drive this wedge to where he was the only person that they could trust. He wanted to gain everybody's trust and make everybody scared of everybody else. He's putting them in this situation, but then trying to pers- you know, persuade them or show them that he's also their savior. He put them in this situation, but he's also their only way out of the situation. And... He said that, you know, one of the guys I know, his name was Mike Rinder. I'm trying to remember the other guy's name, but there were multiple people and... There was like six that came out and spoke against him. Yeah. And a bunch of the people during this, he came in one time and he's like, we're going to go and play musical chairs. And basically told them that the last person in the chair gets to stay and made them fucking do this musical chairs to Bohemian Rhapsody Mm -hmm. and kept repeating the line or kept emphasizing the line, nothing really matters. And so imagine a game of musical chairs where your entire livelihood is based on this. Your entire life is based on it. You had people fighting, beating the shit out of each other, trying to get to this final chair. And then afterward, after the last person, didn't he say like they could stay or some shit? He said everybody could stay. This was just a test. And being asked, you know, interviewing these people, they're like, well, why didn't you, you know, if they're holding you against your will, why didn't you just leave and like, you know, get the police involved in this? They're like... Because at that point with our mindsets, we would have told them that we, we were there by our own free will. Despite us having every single indication and appearance as being prisoners, in our minds, we were there. And the brainwashing was so intense that they would be thinking to themselves like, I must have done something to deserve this, man. I must have done something really bad to be deserving of this. And hearing these people talk about that and then having the follow-up question of like, do you look back on this and have regrets? They're like, of everything is regretful, but 
you don't see it until you've taken a step away from it. While you're in it, you don't see anything else. And then only when you do step away from it do you understand the absurdity and the just insanity of it all. Uh, Mike Rinder was like a... He was basically like the media liaison for the entire Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. So he was the one that was tasked with going out and defending Scientology in public and making sure that these people stuck to the script that would go out and talk. And Rinder, I think it was... There are other names escape me. There's quite a few of them that were higher-ups, but as they escaped and left, their spouses and everybody were still in the church. And Disconnect. Yep, part of the the policy against suppressive persons, they had an interview with Anderson Cooper and it was, I believe it was four wives and Cooper was asking them questions about basically, did these people make all these abuses up? Did they make up that Miscavige had hit them, that he had tortured them, that he had beaten them? He had done some of it personally. Yeah. He he would play mind games, but then at the same time, he would also be physically abusive towards these people. And, the wives all like when they would show their Chiron and they would show the names, mm-hmm. all their wives' names were back to their maiden names. Like there there was mm-hmm. no connection to these men. And he asked about um Anderson asked about if she had ever seen any evidence that Miscavige had maybe hit them or abused them. The first woman that spoke, I believe, was Mike Rinder's wife, and she said something along the lines of, I inspected every inch by inch i knew every inch of his body or something like that and no there's no and then they go yeah they go to the next woman and she literally almost uses the exact same analogies yeah it it was the same script that you could see them repeating over and over and excuse me the other defense mechanism that they're always taught when doing interviews is to try to turn it on the interviewer to make them look like the bad guy and after she had repeated the same thing, you could kind of tell that she was maybe getting uncomfortable. So she accused Anderson of um, an abusive line, line of questioning mm-hmm. that she felt uncomfortable with and that he should feel bad about doing. So like she, she tried to flip it on him to try to change the subject. So it's just the amount of torture that these people go through having to listen to not only being defamed on the internet, they have these millions and millions of IP addresses and website names that they've purchased and they fire them up and it's just slanderous items that they bring up. Most of it, not even true. I I would assume a great portion of it, not even true, if not all of it to try to defame these people that are speaking out against Scientology. So for every one website that you'll click that might be Mike Render's blog, there's 50 other websites trying to defame him and talk about how he touches kids and is just a very bad person. Not because they have this information, but because they want to discredit any information that he could give that would portray the church in a bad light. Like, it's such a mind game and such just a mind fuck that these people try to cut you off, they're still surveilling you. Mike Rinder's wife had to file a lawsuit against the Church of Scientology, not against the Church of Scientology, but against David Miscavige himself to try to bring him to the stand because they had, much like the father, a house across the street from them that had cameras on them for 24 hours, seven days a week. They had people come to their front porch and not assault them or anything like that, but basically, what did they call them, squirrels? Something like that. I can't remember what the analogy was, why they called them squirrels, but it was someone who had left essentially without permission. I mean, the the list of things. So there's 
multiple things. So uh, David Miscavige's wife, Shelley Miscavige, she um, like hasn't been seen publicly since 2007. And there's been multiple missing persons. I think Lisa, uh, Leah Remini has filed, you know, a few missing person reports about her. Um, it was really weird because she didn't attend the wedding of Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. We're going to get into Tom Cruise yeah, here in just a second a because one. that that's he's the he's the, he's the, he's, the he's the poster boy for for Scientology. He's the one that can make it seem normal. But then you hear Tom Cruise actually talk about Scientology, and then you're like, this is anything. Very but, much not normal. Um, but no, she hasn't been seen for literally years. And as far as like, you want to talk about just like control and everything, every aspect and everything that goes on in that church with all of its members doesn't get, you know, approval without David Miscavige. Mm-hmm. And do you want to get into Tom? Yeah, it's... I... Just from like a, a fan's perspective, there's certain Tom Cruise movies I enjoy. Mission Impossible's um, oddly enjoyed the second Top Gun more than I felt like I should now knowing everything about Tom. But he's somebody that I've always just felt was weird. He just he's always felt odd, and I didn't really know until you really dive into the depths of seeing his role in Scientology, that it all kind of starts to make a little bit of sense as to why he's so off-putting. He's, when he's on screen, he's a fantastic character. Mm-hmm. He'll dive in, he'll do all that I stuff. think he's a character off-screen, too. If you ever hear you him think talk it's more of a think... character off-screen? No, That's no, no. the one that makes me uncomfortable. No, I don't, know if, I don't know if, you know, since early, early on, they said kind of when he started getting connected with David Miscavige, before he was the leader of the church, him and Tom Cruise were actually just really close, even before that. Huh. But even before the days of the movie Days of Thunder, that's where he first met Nicole Kidman. So he was married before that. And the woman he was married to, that's how they got into Scientology, was by his previous wife. So he was connected with David Miscavige. And I think David Miscavige, Tom being a rising celebrity, kind of made him his priority. He's like, if I play this right, I can make this guy be essentially the the face of this entire entire cult. And so... He ends up meeting Nicole Kidman. They end up getting married, and they adopted two kids. And Nicole Kidman, I don't think she was ever technically a Scientologist. She might have been, like, by association. She showed up. She supported Tom when he would be mm-hmm. getting a medal or something like that. It was She was just more of like the arm candy, the ring thing, if you will, that he would bring to events. Yeah. And her father was actually, I can't remember if he was a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but he was immediately labeled as a suppressive person because of that. And then by association, she was on a watch list basically of being a suppressive person as well. And due to that, there is the theory, which I think there's a lot of evidence behind it, that Scientology is the one that kind of stepped into in that marriage. They also then tried to turn their kids against Nicole Kidman labeling her again an SP. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't see a lot of stuff with her and her kids or Tom and his kids or anything like that. But I, I don't know where the children stand at that point. I didn't really get that deep into that aspect of it. I think it's by design, though. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, so after Nicole Kidman, there was a time period in which Tom Cruise needed a girlfriend. And so you know, being the matchmaker they are, Scientology's like, we're, we're going to go ahead and get you set up with somebody. So 
there was a girl within like the whatever they consider their humanitarian program. I don't know what they fucking called it. Uh, crazies across America or whatever the fuck it was. Her name is Nazinin <coughs> Banandi. Uh, sorry for mispronouncing that last name. But you have probably seen her if you've watched any type of, you know, TV. So she was a character on How I Met Your Mother for a few episodes. She is one of the uh, star people or stars of the new Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. She plays, I think her name is um, Browen, Bronin or something. Um, she's played, you know, guest spots in a bunch of different shows. This was before I think she was an actor, but mm. they found her. They wildly attractive. Yes, they found her. They did a lot of. Did they take off her braces? Yep. Was that okay? So they removed her braces, took her on like a twenty thousand dollars shopping spree to buy all of these fancy clothes, and then she was. I'm not sure how the meeting took place. If she was kind of presented, or I'm More pretty sure. I think that's what it is. And so they were together for three months, and there's an instance um, where they were at Tom Cruise's house in Telluride, Colorado. And David Miscavige was over there, and apparently she was suffering like a migraine, and she was having some trouble understanding him. And he took it as her being rude. And so after he left, apparently Tom Cruise got in her face and was like, how dare you treat him that way? You embarrassed me in front of him. And I guess within a couple, within a week or or two weeks, she was told, not by Tom, but essentially by members of like the PR department like you were talking about, that they were no longer together. They came in, they completely cleared out all evidence of her and Tom's relationship. And to the point now where there hasn't been denial of their relationship, but it has never been addressed. Questions just go unanswered about it. Like they they took pictures and just burned the pictures. Like Mm -hmm. that was going to make everything go away. It was like Tom Cruise figured out that she pooped and he's like, I can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Except for it wasn't even something where it was a direct affront to him it was a miscommunication miscommunication and Miscavige's like ego was hurt to where he wanted to hurt her so bad. How back. dare you not understand me? Yeah. Like, like I'm the leader of the church. I don't care what ailment you have going on, this migraine that's causing you to not focus on me. You need to focus on me. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, for you not doing it, I'm gonna make sure that Tom knows Tom's gonna ruin your life after we just brought you out of basically working abject poverty. To be dating, at that point, probably one of the most famous actors alive. Oh, yeah. How, Easily. Yeah, how do you not... That's the same thing with the Katie Holmes situation, is there are interviews with Katie Holmes where she's like, yeah, Tom Cruise was my childhood crush. So, of course, why is she not going to go, you know, whole hog in on that if she's yeah. presented the option to be with him? You know, she's going to probably do whatever it takes. Um did you see the medal that he got? <laughs> they, what was it called? The Freedom Medal of Valor? The Scientology Freedom Medal of Valor? Just any, this... any adjective that you could throw on there that would make it sound cooler than it was. Yeah. His his speeches that he gives, I'm sure everybody remembers when he went a little harebrained on Oprah's couch and stood up and did all that kind of stuff. But the passion that he speaks with about Scientology. He did an interview. Was it Matt Lauer, the one where he's wearing the black turtleneck? And he can't quit laughing. Yeah, he's just, just it's like, yes, it's like an insane cackle or just like. <laughs> but you you see, like you said, that thousand yard stare, the way that he talks about it. And the way that he talks about like Miscavige and everything like that, it's just, it's false idol worship or some crazy shit. And kind of like what you were telling me um, about, you don't know if he's really into Scientology or now he's gotten so used to what Scientology can do for him 
if that's what it is. I think I even like kind of me and you've had a conversation in the past about, I don't know if he's really, even if he wasn't in it, he could just make the agreement to say, I'm never going to speak disparagingly about this, but I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't want to really talk about it anymore. And so we'll just go ahead and let that go. But I, I think looking back and watching, you know, doing this research and everything that knowing what they've done for him, he's, 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 you know, at one point or at several different points, he's been the biggest movie star in the world, but Scientology, they said they would just provide him with everything he needed. They they would outfit his houses, um, get him new cars whenever he Mm -hmm. wanted to, or whenever he needed something else that the church would just provide it to him. And I think if you get that, you get comfortable with that. Yeah. You have your own money. You can do all of that yourself, but why would you, if you didn't have to? Well, and there's even a certain, like, it's hard to really think about because we, we don't have this level in life, but you're a world famous movie star and you know that everybody loves you. There's something about physically seeing that. Like when you go out on the street, if you're famous and you get rushed by the paparazzi Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff, that's negative attention. You don't like that. But with him to be invited to these just random weird award shows, to be given an award for donating another million dollars, $2 million to the cause, whatever the love that he actually gets where people just are like fainting to see him. Fanatical. Yeah, to to treat him like he is his own god, that's an ego trip. It's Elrond, David Miscavige, Tom Cruise. Uh, Yeah, in that, uh, between Miscavige and Tom Cruise, I would almost say in the public side, Tom Cruise is far more famous than Miscavige ever would be, but he also, like, Miscavige knows that his relevance is so tied into Cruise that they have to keep showing that love Mm -hmm. and admiration. Like it's, uh, I, I, I could get it. I, I could see it from Cruz's point of view as far as like just how much respect that he gets and the kowtowing that they do for him. I'm sure he has the, the kill pass too within, oh. within Scientology. So Those you can almost see dead it. hookers. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. He's, he's got his pick of the litter. Anybody that's a Scientologist, Tom Cruise could, could make happen. It and, just and, like, it's. I don't know. It's something maybe, maybe it's something that he can't buy. He's already viewed, you know, with love and adoration, you know, throughout the world for his movie roles and everything. But I think maybe what he gets out of his, I don't want to call it a fan base, but what he gets out of that cult of Scientology is he gets, it's not people being fans. It's people almost worshiping him as another type of idol in Scientology. Did you see the video that they fucking, when they did the metal? Uh-huh. That they, it was a 23-minute highlight video, not even of, like, his movies, of just him on, like, red carpets or meeting with, like, dignitaries or, like, world leaders and everything. And they're like, Tom Cruise brings Scientology to the world. He's reached over one billion people to bring Scientology to the masses. Yeah, it was like a... A trailer for his life. Yeah. And he's talking about how he's met all these foreign dictators and all our dignitaries and some all, dictators. Huh? Maybe some dictators. Yeah, he probably did. Mm-hmm. Maybe him and Lil Kim got together. But he's talking about them and then he talks about Miscavige in the same breath. Like he's he's bringing Miscavige up with world leaders talking about how he's more of a straight shooter than them. Like he's almost a level above them. And that's the kind of shit that Miscavige gets off on and then continues to feed into Cruz's ego. To have like it's, a person of that prominence oh yeah. almost look up to you, that's got to be just like the the 
brain chem- chemical reaction, everything like that. There's that's his high. And you can tell there's almost they they show it multiple times and go and clear where um, Tom Cruise and Miscavige will shake hands and they'll make like physical contact. Mm-hmm. And it so much feels like stepbrothers when they're trying to figure out how to hug. It's like an intimate. It's like it's stiff uh-huh. and it's like yes. a, almost like a power play. But at the same time, they're having this weird private conversation. He's like, you did this. He's like, you did this. He's like, you did. But it's like congratulatory. Like, it's, like it's we're the, the most, most powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The most aggressive salute that you will ever see when back he, and forth. When he does that after giving his little fucking speech <laughs> and everything like that and tells them about like the mission they're on and what they're going to accomplish and all that stuff and then he literally turns to the fucking giant picture you guys got to look this up on youtube he's wearing this big ass fucking the goddamn gold medals the size of a saucer plate and he turns and looks at this picture of l ron hubbard and is just gives an actual military salute and is like to lrh and then everyone in the fucking crowd does it it's just blind obedience it's not real like there's nothing in the world that can you can trick your brain to say this famous movie star is living this life outside of it where he's saluting a fucking picture. Like it's just your brain can't make those leaps, but it is reality. Where do you think it falls in like the like the ideology? Like do is is Elron just the prophet that brought all of this to everyone's attention? Because the way that it's shown is he's like the the deity. Because he was able to somehow discover all of this or make – like not discover this. He was able to just take all of his sci-fi bullshit and package it with something that was somewhat useful in principle as far as self-help. And then like so what is he? What do you think he is to them? Jesus Christ. He was okay. a living prophet that brought them to where they needed to be. Okay. And then after his death, he's treated with such reverence, which he was not – a, for as much money as he had, he couldn't afford a dentist. Like he, he was a very ugly man. He didn't, it's what you value, man. He wanted power and obedience. And can you imagine, like, the time that you know LRH was leading this? Can you imagine just the heinous when there wasn't people that were gonna rat on him, or you know, there was no one to get pictures of him, or any kind of that stuff? Like, this is just the stuff that not only we know, but that almost has like seeped out. Or the information that Scientology has let us have, you know, the crumbs of information. But can you imagine the heinous shit that someone that is willing to just peddle this stuff and then eventually, I guess, believe it himself or have to practice it himself or I don't know. But I I just don't. I don't know. I don't understand it. I guess I don't have that part of me that, that has the capability of understanding that. No, and it's it's weird because this is so dumb, but it's just, it takes you a level of brain power that it's almost like you don't want to devote enough to it. Like, it's just, you can pass this off. It's like, eh, that's, that's weird. That's crazy. And Elron, with his proclivity for women having as many wives as he had, definitely a molester. Definitely, I have no doubt in my mind that he was just a pervert, whether that gets us in trouble or not. he uh, I'm sure, excuse me, that there have been many accusations of him taking liberties with Sea Org members that were not as willing as they should have been, but also probably a bunch of them that were, because he was looked at as this god-deity figure that anybody would feel privileged to even be in the presence of. And he definitely did that. I Miscavige's wife just randomly going missing is maybe more of like a, I don't know, maybe if she's 
not in sight or she's been taken care of, he maybe feels less guilty about doing the same things. But when you have that level of power over these people, I feel like you're probably getting away with some shit that you shouldn't be. As far as like a belief, apparently, and this might also help make it more palatable or, you know, it's, you know, the spoonful of sugar cover and the, you know, piece of crap, but they don't have like a set dogma on, on God and they kind of allow individuals to come to their own understanding. They more refer to it as like, uh, like infinity or maybe like, I, I don't know. It, there's no clear definition of God and Scientology on it. So I guess if you leave that open-ended enough and you don't claim, you know, if Elrond never claimed to be that, like you're saying, he's maybe the Jesus part of it, the prophet in that capacity. But if you let people, you know, if he would have, if he would have defined something and said either, you know, I don't think he could have got away with it if he said, I'm the God of this. Maybe not. I, I don't think it, because that, that's, I think that's too big of a, a leap for people to make, um, to understand that there's a, like a godly being on earth and has all of these fault, like, you know, that, that seems kind of like way too far fetched, but by also leaving it kind of open-ended on that and saying like, oh yeah, I mean, there's some type of like divine, you know, intelligence, you know, throughout the universe and everything. Then he can say, well, of course that divine intelligence also created fucking Xenu and mm-hmm. the fucking Thetans and all that kind of stuff. So it's, but to get there, it's just so fucking crazy. <laughs> and, and that's a lot of, um, a couple of the interviews, one of them was with, uh, I think Paul Haggis. And Paul Haggis yeah. is like a really well-known writer. He's written some of like some huge Academy Award winning um, screenplays and has written for TV. And it's, it's always the same story when people come out of this is that they have the understanding that what they were in is ridiculous and that it was embarrassing and that they're shameful of their time during that. But it's just during that time, there's no way for – there's no windows. There's no way for them to look out and see anything that's normal. I mean, the the simple fact, going back to something that you mentioned with the knowledge reports, so talking about that, part of the entire principle of Scientology is almost like a tattletale system, is if you say something disparaging or counter to what, you know, you're supposed to believe or be saying, the person that hears you, it's their job to file one of these reports to let them know what's going on. And if they don't file that report and it comes to light that they were aware of the situation, they're treated exactly the same as the person who would be, what, an SP or made the disparaging comments. So it's incentivizing a sense, turning on somebody that you would even consider your friend because you'll be punished if you don't. Like Self-preservation. I know, but what kind of, like, what is that? Like, how do people look at that and say, so we're supposed to not feel comfortable speaking any type of like free thinking thought to even people that we consider as friends because we don't have any friends. These people aren't really friends. They're, are they just waiting for us to screw up and then trying to use that to gain leverage to make themselves more prominent? Yeah. Is that how you're getting to your next OT level? It yeah. Is to tell on enough people. Mm-hmm. I, it's all of it sounds so crazy. The one thing that I think is sort of an unintended benefit of it and this doesn't go for all of them because I think there's a lot of people that love Scientology. But as far as that financial manipulative control, Scientology has built up such a weird misunderstanding of things that when these big leaders like Paul Haggis gets out, like Mike Rinder, anything like that, somebody that was more of a prominent role. <clears throat> Either they, publicly facing, because I think Paul Haggis may not have been in leadership. He was. Oh, was he really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he was up there. 
But when you leave, it's almost like you're given this golden ticket to be able to go cash it in for any interview that you want. And I'm not saying it's a great thing because these people have gone through hell in order to get it. Mm -hmm. But it almost does give you a financial avenue to go out and speak your truth to be able to support yourself just based on all this crazy shit that happened. So it's almost like when somebody gets wrongfully convicted and you can go back and sue the state for reparations mm-hmm. for being incarcerated illegally, they're almost given this way out to be like, hey, I can go sell this interview for $25,000 because I was three degrees of separation away from L. Ron Hubbard and I can tell you exactly how it goes. Like, it's not something to be celebrated, but it is kind of something that's cool to know that if you have a story, there is somebody that's going to be willing to listen to it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if they necessarily view it that way because looking at it just from the perspective of what possibly they have on you, you know, it's almost like a, it's a gamble because you're gambling the fact that, yeah, you're going to come out with this information, but do they have enough information on you to completely discredit you to make you seem like you're just doing this maybe out of spider revenge? Like, what uh, what was it they were talking about that when some prominent people leave, uh, part of the fair game policy is they'll create a website. Yeah. And it'll be like, who is Paul Haggis? Who is Mike Rinder? And then they'll just list all of the dirty shit that you admitted to or that you talked about and everything. But most of that doesn't even have to be true. No, it's, it's just muddying the water a little bit. It's it's just enough to put the doubt in people's head to doubt your character. Uh-huh. Because then they'll be able to doubt, like, well, if he said this and he's saying this, I don't know what to believe. And so it just creates enough doubt to, to you know, keep it from being taken as wholly true. But I think with enough people now coming out, and again, the, the numbers speak for themselves about their membership and everything. Um, I think it shows that once this information out and enough sources are coming out with this information, and it's not contradicting. No one's coming out with different stories. Uh -uh. They all have different experiences in it, but it's all tied to the same information that they're gathering out of this. Um, It makes it that much more believable when you have, you know, 50 sources rather than just one. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, leaving that is almost a form of death in itself. I think uh, Mike Rinder, I can't remember which other guy, he talked about that. He talked about every time he has to either answer these questions or go through this, it's almost like a a small death that Mm. he's experiencing. He has to go back to that. And, I mean, it's hard. It really is kind of hard to to feel sympathy for these people. I have admiration that they're able to come out to try to let people know what's going on to protect future people from getting into these situations or even let people that are in the church that are able to somehow see this information. Cause I tell you right now, it's probably not easy for anyone within the church to view any of this information. Yeah, that's not getting into yeah. the bubble. It's a, and Render has talked about it too, where he just says that, he ended up finding out the information that sort of started to help him leave. But before he found that out, he didn't know of any of this other, that he was so insulated that he wasn't, they tell you not to read the internet. They Mm -hmm. tell you not to watch. I don't think they, I don't think they give you access actually. Probably not. I remember there was a situation where, uh, Ron Miscavige was talking about how he was given a Kindle with all of L Ron Hubbard's, uh, works on it. But it was disabled to the fact where he could only utilize the internal search system within Scientology, like their own intranet. And through a mistake, he accidentally held the search button too long and it took him to Google. 
And he was able to find on Google that a woman that he had been telling was alive and well and in this other role had died six months before. And he had just got the information about her literally like two weeks before about her doing well. And then he found this out, kept it to himself, of course. But then he was out and kind of about and two other people within Scientology are like, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday is coming up. We're going to pitch in for a gift for her. And he just kind of stared at him like, oh, yeah, like I had I not known that no one would know this. Uh-huh. So, I mean, just the the suppression that they have to do just to keep people in their place. How do you justify that even calling yourself like a religion? That's it. You pull up the, you know, the listing of qualifications that a cult has to have to qualify as a cult. And you're checking off so many fucking boxes on this. How do you call it anything but that? And I don't remember who said it, but I think the saying is, the only difference between a cult and a religion is time. Yeah. And that that's why hopefully the dwindling numbers in Scientology will help to do it in and losing their tax exempt status, which fingers crossed it happens. What's it going to take for that to happen? What would it? I mean, I just, it's talking, it's figuring out where their finances are. It's so tough to lose it because you have to be able to have documentation of it. But if they're not turning in documentation from where the money's going because they're exempt, it's tough to kind of put those pieces together. And it also could be, I mean, regardless of whether that's stripped or not, Scientology still has the resources to do what they did before. And if we've learned anything from this day and age, there's really no clean people in government. It's just Mm -hmm. the least dirty or the ones that you try to, to follow. Well, and I feel too, that they're trying to Scientology is trying to not reinvent itself, but they're getting to the point where, and it's not a desperation move, but I think it's a lot of compromise within whatever their ideologies are, whatever they hold themselves to, to be. But, um, they tried to, uh, inter- introduce themselves. Was it to the Nation of Islam back in like 2012 or something? They tried to introduce. <laughs> I'm sure that went well. They tried to. I think they did introduce. They just introduced it as Dianetics. They just provided them the, because you read Dianetics and it's probably not that fucking crazy. Well, you get to the Thetan shit. Yeah. Thing and then yeah, it's a little crazy. Yeah, but they're trying to introduce this stuff, and so you can kind of maybe the writings on the wall that the the downfall of this is happening but fuck they have what like 2.5 billion dollars a lot of money they're worth that much assets. just in properties that they've purchased and everything so even if it does go you know they they're making all of this money while they're tax exempt even if the tax exemption status you know i feel like it would probably be a little bit of a slow death at that point and you know we've already established that you know what type of character david miscavige is if that really happened it, all he's going to do is just take a bunch of the money and run and then tell these other, you know, 30 or 40,000 people, hey, tough shit, I'm, I'm out of here, you're never going to find me again. Yeah, I'm going to step down and go to my island. Mm-hmm. So, um, do we want to end on a happier note with the table of leaders that you would like to invite to dinner? Do we yeah, let's do, do that. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say we can either do that or we can save it for the one-on-one or a one-on-one. Let's do the table of leaders now. Okay. It'll, it'll help us wrap this up to... End on a, a somewhat kind of funny note. Yeah, so I, I feel very confident in my list. Um, you doing a top five or top three? Top five. Okay. I had to because I I needed to fit my guys in because this is going to be something where I I want to hear everybody, but I also want some people that would be like, holy shit, can you believe what he's saying? So my my dinner list that I'm taking out to dinner, my top five. We'll probably uh, have a few of the same guys. Probably. 
So I got to have my straight man. I got to have somebody else that's going to take it in. Um, my one one guest, Dalai Lama. Okay. I'm going to have him sitting to my right so he can listen to just these crazy people talk about all this other shit. I need somebody that I can laugh with. I need somebody that's going to give me inner peace. Uh, total consciousness on my deathbed. I need Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Gunga Galunga. Number, yep. <laughs> Gunga, Gunga Galunga. Number two, uh, just based on pure storytelling standpoint, Ron, L. Ron. He's going to be sitting right next to the dolly. Right next to him, I'm going Anton LaVey because I feel like their storytelling abilities will just go back and forth mm-hmm. and they'll just continuously try to one-up each other. To I think you got to sit those guys across from each other. Maybe so they yeah. can keep eye contact. Mm-hmm. And you have a guy that really believes in no religion as opposed to a guy who built himself into a religion. Mm-hmm. Um, Pat Robertson, I'm fitting in there because I feel like he's a – a crazy evangelist or evangelist that will try to interject himself to try to make himself sound better than the other two, at least like to continuously try to build himself up. Mm. And, um, out of those four plus me, we're going to Irish goodbye at the end of the night. We're sticking Joel Austin with the check because Joel Austin definitely has the money to pay mm-hmm. the bill. And he may be a modern day, just the biggest snake oil salesman in my my lifetime of seeing these guys and the guy <laughs> did you ever see the story about the plumber that came and worked on his compound i want to say i i heard of it i can't remember the details he dug into the wall and he found a hundred and forty thousand dollars stashed in the wall of yeah. the church you're telling me that you're making so much money that you have hundreds of thousand dollars did they do that on right well, didn't they do that on righteous gemstones yeah so yeah, that's they, what they, they did a spinoff yeah of it. But this, it actually happened that that plumber found that much money stuffed in the walls. So if you can insulate your walls with money, we're going to leave you with the check. Plus, I want to make it as weird and awkward as possible for him to mm-hmm. be like, these guys have done some pretty crazy stuff. You remember that hurricane that happened and that flood that happened when everybody was trying to rush for higher ground? You let people in. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you didn't want them to the get compound. the fucking church dirty. Because you were so far away and safe that you didn't want those people to use your facilities. Just kind of keep reminding and be like, these people might be bad. You're living bad, though. Mm-hmm. And you're completely like trying to hide. All right. I'm going to go with Buddha. I'm going to try to I, I want this to end up in a like a knockdown drag out. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want this to end peacefully. Um I feel like a few of these guys could maybe find some common ground to team up on the other guys. So we're going to go Buddha. Um I'm going to go with JC. Makes just sense. just because I want him to just be like, okay, almost to have him be like Wait, they did what? They think I'm who? I died for these guys? Yeah. Be like, no, be like, I had a belief system and everything like that, but I just, I got, I died like a normal dude. <laughs> and then maybe my followers just come and took my body or something like, some shit like that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and throw in Confucius in there. Oh. I've got to get some Eastern philosophy or, uh, yeah, Eastern philosophy in there because I want to see the counterpoint to that. Him and Buddha will go back and forth for sure, but mm-hmm. it'll be a nice, rousing, comfortable debate. Yeah. Um, I think at that point, then I do, I want to get Elrond in here because I need him to be the one that everyone can laugh at and just be like, shut, shut the fuck up and eat your tacos. <laughs> just be the fall guy. Yeah, exactly. Get this guy a kid's menu. All right. How many is that? Uh, that was four. Okay. So did you name a fifth one? Yeah. Austin. Oh, Austin. Okay. And then I think at that point, man, it's hard to, yeah, I think I got to get a Pope in there. 
I gotta get, I gotta have some Catholic representation just because I want to see what the argument throughout everything would be. And then just be, have someone just be like, don't your people just fuck kids? <laughs> the, like, like the what's Nazi with, Pope that yeah, just died. Just be like, what's, what's with the kid fucking inside your guys' church? And then have him try to answer to that and be like, well, Jesus, you guys did this. Mm-hmm. And then he'll just lean over to Elrond and be like, been there. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm going through, right? But yeah, I feel like that could turn into a little bit of a brawl, and I'd I'd like to see that. I feel like Confucius and Buddha might actually clean house there. Yeah, I feel like Jesus probably is a little underestimated in a fight too, because you've seen Jesus is ripped and everything. So I think Jesus would be able to hold his own, but just to see maybe the Pope and Elrond tub of goo. Oh my God, just to see the Pope. I think the Pope and Elrond would be kind of the the odd men out in this situation. They'd and I just up. loved, oh yeah, you're, you're still teaming up against the three other dudes, Buddha and Confucius. Yeah. Buddha, Vishnu with eight arms watching the door. Just having Buddha come off the fucking top rope or off the table and drop yeah. a leg on him. Beautiful. Yeah. I think it would be a fun religious brawl. That's kind of what we're down to. Is a religious just Royal rumble. Hoping that somebody else's God can kick the other God's mm-hmm. asses. Just to have that conversation about who's got the, <laughs> who's got the better deity. <laughs> But yeah, that'd be, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I feel like we did a full debriefing here. It's going to take a little bit to wash this off. I, a lot of showers. Uh huh. I feel like Scientology's touched me in a way that I didn't want it to. Before it was just kind of like a goofy It probably touched you thing. in a way that it wants to touch you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Still want to try an e-meter. Still mm-hmm. want to see how that I'm just getting, works. I'm just, you're wrestling around back there on my back. So just trying to find your wallet. We got to charge it for these sessions. As soon as we start talking about money, I'm out. Good news folks is we do not charge you for these sessions. No. Yeah. This is free. Yep. All right, man. You got any closing thoughts? No, I think we're good. All right, sweet. Well, thanks again for joining us guys. And we'll uh, catch you next week. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.